Before we begin today, I wanted to let you know there are some things that happened during the war that are mentioned in this episode that might be inappropriate for kids. So if there are young ears listening, you may want to give this episode a listen on your own first. Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we'll be wrapping up our look at the historical accuracy of HBO's miniseries, The Pacific, by covering the last three episodes of that series. Joining me again today to help us separate fact from fiction is historian and author Marty Morgan. If you listen to the first two episodes in this series, you'll know Marty has been working on an upcoming series for the Discovery Channel about the Japanese balloon bombing campaign in World War II, as well as on the new Call of Duty Vanguard game. And for our purposes today, Marty was also involved in the production of The Pacific. Before we start today's discussion, though, let's set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one of them is a lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, the Battle of Okinawa was the first time the American military encountered Japanese civilians. Number two, the Nimitz plan for blockading the Japanese islands would have imposed starvation on millions of people. Number three, John and Lena Bassalone were married for less than a year. Got them? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode, and by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to find out which one is a lie. And don't worry, of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to bring Marty Morgan on the line to chat about the historical accuracy of episodes 8, 9, and 10 of The Pacific. We'll kick off today in episode number eight, where we see John Passalone ask Lieutenant General Vandegrift for permission to stop pushing pencils, as the show calls it. The request is granted, and then he starts training new Marines at Camp Pendleton. Was that how Passalone transitioned from his Medal of Honor-related promotion for war bonds that we saw earlier in the series to training Marines at Camp Pendleton? It was. And a couple of fascinating dynamics are at work there that leads to Bassalone's return to the deployable fighting Marine Force, which we call the Fleet Marine Force, the FMF. What led to him returning to the FMF was a couple of factors. First and foremost, he was a little bit done with the pencil pushing, as he puts it. He was a little bit done with the war bond tour. For the record, the war bond tour that he was centrally involved in, it had come and gone. That's not to suggest this possibility that John Bassalone was a has-been, because he certainly was not that. He had been elevated to this position of a household name. You may be aware of the fact that when he returned home after Guadalcanal, he was celebrated in New Jersey with a parade that was covered by Movie Tone and one other source so that it made its way into the newsreels that preceded the motion pictures, that which is the way that most people received their visual news at the time. That's how they received it. It was either newspapers or newsreels. That's what you got. And he became a household name. He was elevated to household name status by that. He was then used during this war bond tour with great success 
And at the end of it, it wasn't that he was like forgotten and he was a has-been. It was that other battles had occurred and other heroes had been created by those battles. And the Department of the Navy wanted to feature the old heroes like Barcelona, and they wanted to feature the new ones as well. So it's not like he was no longer useful to them. It's that they needed to present more heroes. They needed to make more people. They needed to elevate more people to the status and stature that Barcelona had been elevated to. And so he was less needed for that sort of promotional tour work as he had been in 1943. So in 1944, he's no longer quite the front page news that he had been. He was still a celebrity. He was still a household name, but there was other front page news that was attracting everyone's interest. He, therefore, was still useful. He was still involved in some promotions and some training, but he was also nearing the end of his enlistment. And I think that's the critical factor. By closing in on his enlistment, because his enlistment was running out in, that would be June of 44, toward the end of the month. And as his enlistment term was nearing its end, he was trying to figure out, in a way that's, I think, well depicted in the series. And he was trying to figure out what his future was going to be and what he was going to do, because it was going to be a big decision. If I re-enlist, am I going to keep doing this? Am I no longer a deployable Fleet Marine Force Marine? Or am I going to be a stateside person that's involved in promoting war bonds and things like that? So it was for him a difficult decision. So his needs were about to merge with the Marine Corps' needs because the Marine Corps' needs changed fundamentally while he was promoting the war bond drive. And that is that in 1943, the United States military, all branches experienced a major personnel crisis insofar as the people who had flocked to the recruiting stations early in 1942, the people that had lined up in the immediate aftermath of December 7th, basically that entire, um, that, that entire generation of people, they had gone through recruit training or basic training or whatever you want to call it. They had, they had been placed in operational units. They had gone overseas and we had basically worked our way through that harvest, the harvest of volunteers who came in right after Pearl Harbor. To be perfectly clear, people were still volunteering. They just were not volunteering in numbers comparable to early 1942. So that by early 1943, it's beginning to decline the number of volunteers. The military had a draft in position. We began using that draft before the war started. By 1943, we were drafting more people than we were, more people than were volunteering. And the result was then also that the military had to forecast what the future would look like. And the military, in imagining a future where those numbers were going to continue to decline, the numbers of volunteers, that is, the military had to compensate for that in advanced planning, and that compensation resulted in the military beginning to swell the draft pool so that through the calendar year 1943, more and more people are being drafted. Our draft figures are increasing, and it's critically important to point out that the United States Marine Corps began accepting people through selective service, through the draft, which is something that the Marine Corps had not done before, which is something that the Marine Corps wouldn't do again until Vietnam. That's another story. At any rate, the Marine Corps 
was feeling the pinch of the personnel crisis as the volunteer numbers declined through 1943. And the result was that the Marine Corps had to haul in a bunch of people. They still had volunteers, but they had to haul in a lot of people as uh, draftees early on. Do you want to hear just some, some early on research, like gossip from when I was involved in the series? Maybe you do. I remember early on that Hugh Ambrose, one of the one of the research tasks that had been assigned from me, like going way back to the very earliest version of the of the research team for the Pacific, um, going back to 2004, early 2005, I had been given this assignment to research the length of time um, that recruit training was taking, and that's because recruit training is something that exhibited change over time during the course of the Pacific War. To where in the before the war there was sort of a there was an ample amount of time, many many weeks to to take someone in as a raw recruit, put them through boot camp, and then graduate them on the other end and put them in a unit. What the Marine Corps would experience in forty three and forty four was that the personnel crisis became so acute that Marine Corps recruit training had to shrink very quickly because they suddenly needed volume. And this was elaborated through these things that are called uh, letters of instruction that came from the commandant and went to the two uh, Marine recruit depots, Paris Island in North Carolina and, and South Carolina, excuse me. And then, of course, San Diego, California. And in the letters of instruction, the commandant was instructing these two recruit depots on how to change the length of time that recruit training was going to take place. I'm mentioning it not just to bore you to tears, but I'm mentioning it because I feel like it is, provides a fascinating reflection on the way that the Marine Corps experienced this personnel crisis in 1943. And the way that the Corps responded to it was like, oh my God, we've got to punch it. We got to push a bunch of people through recruit training fast. And the knowledge will be that we'll just, we'll just fill the hose up with a lot of people and we'll run them through it. We will shorten the length of recruit training. We'll then get them to their destination unit where they will complete their training. The, the conceit was that upon re reaching their unit, their unit will train them. We'll, we'll fill in the gaps of the training that they didn't receive in recruit training because it was abbreviated. That was the idea. And so I spent an, an enormous amount of time going through the letters of instruction from the commandant to MCRD, Paris Island, MCRD, San Diego. And it fascinated me. It told me a lot about the way that the Marine Corps had to deal with the Second World War. And it's not all butterflies and unicorns. It's not all, plenty of people were lined up and volunteering. That's absolutely not what was going on. By 43, this, I don't want to say dark, but darker reality had set in. And the Marine Corps had to, I don't want to say sacrifice quality training, but it had to compensate for this sudden shortfall in personnel. And that resulted in abbreviated Marine Corps recruit training with the expectation that on delivery to their unit, they would receive greater levels of training, which is something that is very nicely depicted in the series. Because you see that ultimately, John Bassalone decides to re-enlist, he marries, he re-enlists, or wait, is it one before the other? They're almost simultaneous either way. He um, re-enlists, he then becomes, yeah, he becomes cadre in the 27th Marine Regiment. And by cadre, I mean he's senior non-commissioned officer cadre that is then sent to Hawaii where he is training Marines who have already completed this abbreviated Marine Corps recruit training, who have already been sent through the system and have been assigned to 
the 27th Marine Regiment, 5th Marine Division, and Bassalone is there to enhance their training. So you get some of that. You get some of that as a payoff in the series. It's well depicted, I think. And it's showing him. And how would you like to be that person? How would you like to be the young Marine who went through abbreviated recruit training, got assigned to a unit, and you're told you're going to meet this, you're going to meet the sergeant here shortly, and John Bassalone walks in? I can't imagine what those Marines must have thought. They would have followed that man through the gates of hell because he was John Bassalone. He was the recipient of the Medal of Honor. They had all read about his exploits in Guadalcanal. And he then became the person that was going to lead them in combat. It, it, it all fascinates me. All of these details, they seem irrelevant. They seem like fluff, but I believe they inform this, this broader picture. And I think they help you appreciate him because I believe that part of what he, of course, he didn't survive the war, so we couldn't interview and ask him. But I w- if he had, I would love to have asked him, like, why'd you, why'd you, why did you reenlist? And I would, I, I'd imagine, I believe that maybe one of his responses would have been, I felt an obligation. I had experience, I have knowledge, skills, abilities, and experience that the Marine Corps desperately needed then. Because by that point, by the point when he reenlisted, he was beginning to see the people who had been siphoned, who had been pushed through abbreviated Marine Corps recruit training. And I believe he was seeing like, these, these people are Marines, but they're not quite ready. They need experienced non-commissioned officer leadership to get them all the way to where they're prepared to go into combat because the combat that they'll go into is going to be harsh. And I believe he would have said, I know this is absurd for me, a, a dipshit historian. Uh, 77 years later, to put words in John Bassalone's mouth. But I believe that he felt a responsibility. It wasn't just a matter of him wanting to be in combat. It wasn't just a matter of him wanting to get back into the fray because he loved adventure. I don't think that was it. I think we actually trivialize very complex things when we make it a matter of he just wanted to get up there and, and get in the action again because he was bored. I think there's more to it than that. I think he would have provided a very nuanced response to that question that would have included, I had a responsibility. These young recruits needed people like me. I think he would have provided a response to the extent that he wanted revenge against the Empire of Japan, because I believe that animated a very, very large number of people throughout the course of the conflict. And I think he would have um, provided maybe even an additional answer that I can't even imagine. Maybe he would have offered up patriotism. Who knows? And I think that we. I th- I think that we are dealing with a great inequity and it was a very big loss for him not to survive the conflict because I think he could have provided some insight into things that I'm certainly very interested in because one thing that I'm seeing more and more is that as we as we move into this postmodern era a lot of the standards of the way that postmodernity interrogates the World War II time period I think is it's very much 21st century ideals interrogating very early 20th century ideals. In other words, I believe that we project a great deal of cynicism into the actions of people who I believe were not quite as cynical as we would have them be. Um, I think they were certainly not quite as cynical as the HBO miniseries, The Pacific, depicted them. And I think that there were other things at work. And I, and I, I, feel that it's a big loss for us not to have had the voice of John Bassalone stretching beyond 1945, because I think he would have told me a lot. And I don't, I don't know that he would have felt a pressure to misrepresent the reasons why he reenlisted and stayed in the Marine Corps. I think he felt a sense of duty. 
And I think he felt a sense of patriotism. And I believe that the 21st century, through all of its disenchantment and condescension, would never acknowledge that. So it goes without saying that it was a loss that he didn't survive the war. I think it's kind of telling kind of what you had just said a, a moment ago of when he was struggling with the decision of whether or not to reenlist. Something that you mentioned there was, you know, if I reenlist, am, am I going to be stateside and I'm just going to be doing this tour over and over again? Not only did he reenlist, but he stopped doing the tour like he he actually went back to, to train. I think that gives some sort of insight into why he made the decision to reenlist. It wasn't just to reenlist and, and still enjoy this life of being a household name that everybody know. I mean, he still was, but there was some duty there, I, w- I would imagine, you know, some sort of sense of obligation to, I have this experience and I can do something with it. I think you're absolutely right. There was something there because if you, if you had just married the love of your life, why would you volunteer to go off to die? And he did that. He could have, and no one would have said the first critical word about it. He could have become an instructor at MCRD San Diego, where he would have been contributing and contributing in a positive and meaningful way. And he could have gone home every night to Lena. The two of them could have served side by side. They, the Marine Corps would have transferred her to where she was conveniently close to him. They could have lived together as a young couple. And in their honeymoon phase, because the two of them were married for exactly 224 days. And during that time, how long were they together? They were together a handful of days for their marriage. And for her, that was the entirety of her marriage. She was married for 224 days and she never remarried. It's not even clear that she ever had another relationship. So he could have very easily... And this is, I think, why I'm so fascinated by him and the, not thousands, but millions of other Americans that were like him during that conflict. Because he was placed in circumstances where he could have just stayed stateside and trained people. It would have been great service. It would have been useful service. And no one would have criticized him. And he could have gone home to his wife every night. But instead, he was called to serve in more than just a training capacity. He sought out an assignment to the Fleet Marines Force, which led him to the 27th Marine Regiment, 5th Marine Division, which led him ultimately to his death. And why would these people do that? Why would someone like him, the world was literally his oyster. He could have stayed home with his beautiful wife. He could have continued to serve. He would have, could have remained in uniform for, for the duration of the conflict and then enjoyed a life after his service during which... He enjoyed a great deal of prosperity simply by virtue of the fact that he was a household name as a war hero. And instead, he had to have Fleet Marine Force. He had to have a combat assignment, and it got him killed. There's something at work there. By that same token, Eugene Sledge, he had a physical comorbidity that disqualified him from service. He was from a wealthy family. He was intelligent. He had laid out in front of him every reason to dodge enduring the absolute misery of Peleliu and Okinawa. But instead, he he sought them. He purposely sought out an assignment to the Fleet Marine Force. And I find sometimes that Freudian postmodernists, which I think is hilarious because there are a lot of them, and to me, postmodernism is in direct conflict 
with every aspect of Freudian thought. Because Freudian thought is something that we've long since abandoned. And yet, postmodernists love to use uh, Freud when, when he is convenient for it. And I, they will frequently call on Freud to say, oh, well, he did it because he derived advantage from it. He derived a payoff. He was rewarded by it in some, to some extent. So they use this Freudian psychology to pretend like they actually understand the actions and motivations of individuals. And so postmodernism is a very 21st century thing. And then they look back to an, an abandoned and obsolete school of 19th century thought to peer into the minds of people and, and assign to their motivations all these dark, self-aggrandizing characteristics. But they will frequently do that. And I don't see how these decisions rewarded Eugene Sledge. They certainly did not reward John Bassalon. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden I had a huge unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then because that would have relieved a lot of stress. Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Well, you mentioned her earlier, and I wanted to ask about uh, Lena, because according to the show, uh, while Bassalone is at Camp Pendleton, he meets and falls in love with Sergeant Lena Riggi. And then something the show heavily implies is that, I thought this was funny, so the show really heavily implies that Bassalone is very popular with the ladies due to his public appearances as the hero of Guadalcanal. And Lena actually rejects him a couple times in episode number eight. Because of this, she just thinks that he just wants to hook up, and so he has to prove to her that he's not just trying to hook up with her and this is actually a meaningful relationship. How did the show do portraying how John and Lena met? I'm the wrong person to ask this because the coffee scene, I think, is the greatest scene of the entire series. I absolutely love the two actors, the way that they interact with one another. And I believe that they had a chemistry and I believe that Annie Paris is a goddess living among us. First of all, that's the actress that played Lena. That scene is so full of charm and so full of an interesting dynamic of tension and and the future. And if it had been given to lesser actors, I don't think that scene would have sprouted the way that it did. And to me, it's the, my favorite mo- moment in the entire series. Yeah, I love Battle of Henderson Field and M1917A1 Machine Guns. But to me, 
the entire heart and soul of this series is literally that scene where you're, you're seeing somebody. And I, I can't stress this enough. John Baslone could have had one howling drunken binge from one end of the United States to the other, and no one would have breathed a critical word. He could have burned all of that out of his system for a year or two or three years or hell, even 10, and then decided to settle down and pick a, pick a nice little woman and settle down with her. He could have done all of that, but that's not what happened. Interestingly, he fell in love with somebody and it has every appearance of being something that was pure and genuine. She waves him off at first because she's just assuming that he's nothing but a playboy. I get this all the time too. I'm kidding. I never get this. She, I could see how approaching somebody like him might have for her been like some, a moment of great caution. And I think that's why this scene is, that scene is so damn good because you can see her going, all right, you get, watch out with this guy because he's just going to fly in one day and he's going to be gone the next. And I'm just going to be another name that's forgotten in a, in a year. I'm just going to be, you know, we're going to be two ships that pass in the night and that'll be that. And I could see how a woman would be cautious to that. I could see even a man could be cautious to something like that should the circumstances present themselves. And so she exercises this caution and then she ultimately falls for him. What she doesn't fall for is the manipulator who uses his charm to draw her in and then gets what he wants and dashes off. Instead, she falls for somebody who, it seems to me, provided her with the genuine, true, one love of her life. Because it's certainly noteworthy that that woman never remarried and apparently never had another relationship. And John Bassalone, by that same token appears to ex have expressed the same um, the same emotions because he could literally have had anyone. I realize in the 21st century, it's weird to say things like that here in, the, in this era, particularly when we, we don't understand greatness being within the context of a man who resists all these other temptations. But I would, I would also point out that in this era, in this, in this political moment where we're having these reckonings, with the way that sexual assault and sexual harassment interact, with the way that men and women interact within that, that zone. We have plenty of examples of people who use absolutely every advantage available to them so that they can, they can chalk up another victory. They can pull somebody, drag somebody into bed and then move on and act like it never happened and then settle down later in life. We have plenty of examples of that. And what do we have here? We have an example of a man and a woman who genuinely appear to have loved one another deeply and that they also were both tugged at by senses of patriotic responsibility because, after all, it is only because of the, the uniform of the United States Marine Corps that the two of them were brought together. They would not have met one another otherwise had it been for that uniform. And that's why the, the, the two of them as a couple fascinate me. Because they were both responding to these, what I believe were genuine senses of patriotism and obligation. They were brought together by ideas of service. They were then, they, they went through exactly what millions of couples go through every year. They fall in love with one another. And the two of them brought those impulses together. The uh, patriotic uh, move toward service and the very genuine and natural 
man falls in love with woman and woman falls in love with man. And I just, I can't tell you how much I admire that one scene where the two of them sit down to have a cup of coffee and have a a simple passing conversation. I feel like that does more, that provides more character development than him mowing down waves of Japanese attempting to attack Henderson Field and Guadalcanal. That does more to make him this deeply believable human. The machine gunning Japanese on near Henderson Field does a lot too. And I think all of this, I'm saying all of this because I believe it shows you there was so much to these people. These were not one-dimensional, homogenous slaves to Freud who only sought out opportunities that were presented to them by service to their nation or by um, a relationship that emerges. They were not that simple. They were multidimensional, multifaceted, dynamic. And I believe that we do the two of them, or oh, their legacies rather, of deep disservice when postmodernism tries to make them these one dimensional slaves to Freud. That is very telling. Like you said, that she never remarried. Yeah. And how'd you like to try to be that guy, the guy that dated Lena afterward? And after that, who is going to measure up to this towering man among men? And she didn't just love him because he was a Medal of Honor recipient, I think. I can't, I'm putting words in her mouth now. I shouldn't do that. But it doesn't look to me that she did, that she went, oh, he's famous. I like him. That's why I'm going to marry him. Although the world certainly provides you more examples of that. But I think what is happening is that there's a reverse psychology that's going on. I think what we have done is that we have moved away from old-fashioned relationships like that. And we've moved to this more stark mercenary and opportunistic reality among relationships. And I think that by trying to project Freud onto them, by trying to project modern ideas of what relationships are, that they're all basically just mercenary opportunism. I think what we're, what we're seeing is that it's the 21st century trying to, to, to dismiss the old timey ways from the 20th century say, Oh, back in the old days, They were really just slaves to impulse, and they were constantly looking for opportunities to aggrandize themselves. And I think that the 21st century does that because the 21st century is trying to assuage its guilt because so many relationships today have turned into that. They've turned into mercenary materialism. And I don't know that John Bassalone and Lena had that. I, I think there was something deeper at work with them. And I think it's it's far, far deeper and vastly complex. And I think that they're very, very well portrayed in the series. I think I've gushed about it quite enough now, don't you? <laughs> well, you alluded to something else, too, earlier. And this happens towards the end of episode number eight. The company that John Bassalone is training gets the orders to ship out. And uh, he had been struggling with whether or not to reenlist, but he decides to reenlist. He does marry Lena. And... That's how we see, according to the series, Bassalone returning to action for the battle on Iwo Jima. And during the battle, I got the sense that he's, you know, he's doing some very heroic things that almost seem similar to what got him the Medal of Honor earlier. We see this, like he, he's seemingly dodging bullets there. You know, he's running around giving commands, uh, but then he is hit. Can you share the historical story of how John Bassalone was killed on Iwo Jima? Yeah, because it it leads us into a a decent little controversy that's certainly worth mentioning. And that is that and uh, John Bassalon is uh, posthumously awarded the Navy Cross for his action on Iwo Jima on February 19th, 1945. And as a part of the Navy Cross citation, 
it describes that he was killed by fragments from an exploding mortar round. Well, you might remember that I was brought onto the project in the capacity of assisting the late Hugh Ambrose in his research, which was aimed at assisting Mr. Hanks and Mr. Spielberg as they were beginning the process of standing this project up. Well, Hugh and I, as a part of our research effort, we ordered documents. I wasn't alone. I wasn't the only one. There were several other people. My good friend Bob Carr in uh, Palm Harbor, Florida was one of them. Uh, a friend named Bill Howell, who was a, a serving United States Marine Corps major at the time. And he's now long, no longer in the Marine Corps, but he, he served to retirement. He was another member of this research team. And then we had another member who now works at this museum in Mississippi. Well, we were all working toward helping Hugh. Hugh was interacting directly with Hanks and Spielberg. And at one point, Hugh came to me to place an order for this document. It's called the IDPF. That stands for Individual Deceased Personnel File. The IDPF is sort of a stock in trade for people who do who conduct military research. Uh, if you're researching people who served during the Second World War, the IDPF is a document that typically contains a lot of extremely useful information. And a quick note on that. In the aftermath of the war, at first, the veterans kind of didn't care about their service. I found that early on, their children didn't care because the baby boomer generation, they were children until the 60s and 70s. And it was only when they became adults in the 70s and the 80s that from the perspective of adulthood, that they really began to care what their parents had done. They cared about what their parents had done during the war. And so research efforts began. That era where there was the people sort of didn't care, it, and it wasn't because nobody cared. It was because basically this whole damn country had, to some extent, been involved in the war effort. And so, I mean, it wasn't a big deal. People ne weren't necessarily trying to impress one another with what they did during the war because everybody did something to some extent. And so in the aftermath of the war, there was sort of like a, a black hole, I could just put it that way. Anyway, that black hole resulted in we knew very little about what people had actually done during the war. People got used to having their relatives around who were capable of answering questions and describing their experiences. Then they, in the 1980s, began to realize, hey, this isn't going to be here all the time. And people began trying to document everything. And as we began trying to document everything, we were experiencing great difficulty in documenting individual experiences. What that led to was researchers like me were out trying to figure out ways of documenting the individual experience because prior to the 1990s, the way that the Second World War was remembered was from the bird's eye view. It was remembered basically from an extremely high point looking down on army groups or Marine Amphibious Corps and what they did. It took time to get to the point where people were more interested in the individual experience in war. And by the time we got there, almost all the veterans were gone. And for people who didn't survive the war, it was made all the more difficult. And what that did was that placed an enormous importance on what documents you could get. And this IDPF, the Individual Deceased Personnel File, was a document that you could get. I mention all of that because Hugh had me request John Bassalone's Individual Deceased Personnel File. And very often when these files come in, they contain a lot of very boring documents. And then they contain things sometimes like hospital reports. And the report that came in 
provided some information that departed from what was described in his Navy Cross citation. And that description, once again, described how he was killed by fragments from an exploding mortar round. What the IDPF contained was a document that indicated instead that he was struck down by enemy small arms fire. For him to have sustained the wounds that he got, I concluded that he was hit by automatic weapons fire. Because first of all, Japanese had some of the finest automatic weapons of the Second World War, and they had lots of them, and they used them to whip our asses across every island where we encountered them. Based on the wounds, it appears to me that John got hit either by a burst from a Japanese Type 92 heavy machine gun or a Japanese Type 99 light machine gun. Uh, But he received these bullet wounds, and that's what ultimately killed him. And the bullet wounds that killed him were sustained because he was in the open. And he was in the open because he was doing what he had done previously, and that is that he was ascending to the leadership position. Why was that? It wasn't necessarily, I mean, you could say on the one hand, it took bravery to, to do that, but it also, it was a part, I believe, an expression of his obligation. He had an obligation as a senior non-commissioned officer to lead his troops. And he was doing that when he was killed. So it sounds like he was essentially doing something similar to what he did on Guadalcanal. Like he kind of fell right, almost, almost fell right back into what he was doing before, just leading the troops. Yeah, I think he, I think what happened it can best be, I have to relate it to things that I've experienced because I haven't experienced combat like he did. But I would relate it to flying a helicopter, riding a bicycle, swimming, or where's one more, or skydiving. I'm going to choose those four because in those four things, the first time you do it is a lot different than the 100th time you do it. I'm just going to take learning to help fly a helicopter. I am not a helicopter pilot, but I dabbled in it for a while until I realized this is expensive and I can't afford it. But what you learn very quickly in trying to learn a help fly to fly a helicopter is, well, first of all, you learn it's very expensive. Then secondly, what you learn is that the instructor is there to get you through. And I remember I had an instructor tell me once, he was like, the first 15 hours are why I'm here. Something magic happens. It's typically around 15 hours. Sometimes for some people, it's around 10. For other people, it's around 20. But something magical happens. You eventually pass through a threshold, an invisible threshold where you really get it. And it's only then that you're, you've become largely safe. Like skydiving. I remember that I, I have done that. That is something I've definitely done. I did a little helicopter stuff, but not a lot. Skydiving, the um, first time you do it, it's absolute terror. The second time you do it, it's absolute exhilaration. Riding a bicycle, I remember it was some struggle that it took to get me up on two wheels. And then once I was up on two wheels, there was no stopping me. But the first few days, it was sort of wobbly. Um, but then once I had gotten it, like, I haven't ridden a bike. I don't think I've ridden a bike since Amsterdam in 2017, actually. Um, but I could go get on a bike now and ride it because I learned. And when I learned was circa 1975. It was a long time ago. And once you learn it, you never forget it. I'm saying all of this to draw as close of a parallel as I can to what has been described to me by people who have been there as defining the combat experience. And that is that at when people are first exposed to it, it's like their first skydiving or maybe those f- first 15 hours of learning to fly a helicopter. And that is that th- your first experience is one where you basically have to kind of get through it that there are intimidating qualities, to put it mildly, 
that you have to basically just overcome. And once you've overcome those, and once you've harnessed the ability to control that, it's only then that you can function in that environment. And I mention all of this because I believe it meaningfully informs the John Bassalone experience, because I believe that part of what compelled John Bassalone to reenlist was, first and foremost, feelings of uh, patriotism and obligation. And then I think he also realized that, listen, I've got all this experience. What am I going to do? Stay at home? I have actual combat experience. There are plenty of other off, there are plenty of other non-commissioned officers in uniform who haven't had what I have, and it's gotten me through that across that threshold to where combat will not be new to me. And once once you as it's been described to me, once you get past that, you can always you maintain you're cool. You learn how to maintain an alertness in an extremely distracting environment. And those are things that are not natural human instincts, that you have to overcome these instincts, just like you have to overcome instincts when you're in recruit training. I find sometimes that non-military people will, they'll look at like footage of basic training and they'll think it looks ridiculous where you see drill sergeants getting this close to someone's face and screaming and they think it's all theatrics and it's all unnecessary. Well, that is not the case. It's all extremely necessary because they're attempting to get those recruits through the threshold where you can maintain cool, you can engage a deliberate decision-making process in an environment that's full of extremely powerful distractions because that's, after all, that's the essence of the combat experience. And so John Bassalone had already been through all of that. He had been elevated to this other tier where he was a different type of person. He was a combat experienced person. And they're different than us. Maybe you've been in combat. Maybe you've not. I have not. But combat experienced people, they're, they're different. The, their experiences elevated them to this other level. And John Bassalone was already there. And he, I believe, felt that it would have been a great waste of that experience for him to have not led men in combat. And then on the day of his death, what was he doing? He was, I think, doing exactly what you expect the senior non-commissioned officer to do. And that is that the troops, even though you've got people who have completed recruit training, even though you have Marines who wore the EGNA, the Eagle Globe and Anchor, they're actual Marines. They've gone through very challenging training. They haven't crossed the threshold. They haven't become this different evolution of humankind. They haven't become combat veterans. And so their first experience in combat is going to be one where it slows them down because the experience does that to people. John Bassalone had already passed all of that. It was years behind him at this point. And John Bassalone was leading those men who were just only passing through that threshold, which is why he had to be conspicuously in the front of the action, which is why he had to be out in the open to lead, to lead his men forward. And the unfortunate reality of the combat environment of Iwo Jima was that the enemy was just there in such great numbers and the enemy was so, so very heavily armed that they got him while he was trying to do exactly what he was there to do. You mentioned Iwo Jima, and I want to ask you about that because the next episode, and we'll get to, that's episode number nine, when the Marines are on Okinawa, and we'll get to that. But because the series focuses on Barcelona there in Iwo Jima, it doesn't really tell a lot of the rest of the story of what's going on there on Iwo Jima, and it, which I, th- I think 
it's fair because I mean focusing on Barcelona and 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 that's definitely a moment there. But can you fill in some of the historical context around what was going on with Iwo Jima? Of course, the reality is that the uh, the United States Marine Corps conducted this initial assault on February 19, 1945, in a battle that will continue for the next 36 days. And over the course of that battle, first three Marine Corps divisions, and then ultimately receiving support from Army units, ultimately the entire Japanese garrison of the island was overrun. The island was captured by the United States, then occupied by the United States. We converted it into an aerodrome. A great deal of this old, now abandoned historiography called emphasis to the fact that after capturing Iwo Jima, I think the number they come up with is something like 20,000 pilots survived the war because Iwo Jima was used as an emergency auxiliary airfield where battle-damaged B-29s returning from raids against Japan could land and thereby save the aircraft, save the crew. While that is true, that is not why we invaded Iwo Jima. In fact, that was not part of the overall plan. There's no evidence of it, of it having even been a consideration in the pre-operational planning for Iwo Jima. We invaded Iwo Jima to establish a fighter base. And that's because the bases where the B-29s were in the Marianas on Guam, Saipan, and Tinian, those bases were too far away for the fighters. The B-29s could make the run, I think the run uh, from the northernmost of those islands, which would be Saipan. From Saipan to Tokyo, I think is about 1,700 miles. To make that run, a B-29 could make it no sweat. A fighter could not make that. Not even the P-51 Mustang could do that. And so the military recognized early on that if we're going to expose the enemy to this dramatic escalation of the, strate- the strategic air campaign, if we're going to begin conducting broad-scale strategic bombing raids against targets in the Japanese home islands, the airplanes are going to experience Japanese fighter interceptors. The airplanes are therefore going to need fighter escorts, and the fighter escorts can't fly from Saipan. So we're going to need something a lot closer, which is why Iwo Jima was selected, which is why the operation took place. And then in the end, that's why we captured it and turned it into an aerodrome. Yes, as an afterthought, troubled B-29s were able to land there and save crews, but primarily we landed on that island to capture it to be to make it a base for U.S. Army P-51 fighters and all other other fighters as well. But mainly that would be seven fighter group fighters based on the island. The irony of this is that as it turns out, targets of the Japanese home islands were far less defended than we thought that they would be. In other words, our B-29s were flying into a threat environment that had far less in the way of anti-aircraft defenses, far less compared to what bombers were experiencing in targets over Germany. And also the Japanese were putting far fewer fighters in the air than we expected. So in the end, the primary reason for landing on Iwo Jima to establish a forward fighter operating base turned out to be not nearly as necessary as we had thought. That makes sense, though. I mean, because you don't know what sort of opposition you're going to get. I would only assume then from Japan's point of view, one of the reasons maybe they didn't have as much anti-aircraft as as Germany is just them being islands. They're not going to have as many planes flying over as in Europe and everybody a lot closer together. Yeah, exactly. That's the exact point you should take away from this because I don't want to say that they were 
neglectful or that they overlooked anything because the Japanese were are too smart to make dumb mistakes like that. I am saying, however, that what the Japanese got was a war that dragged them into an unpredictable paradigm. They were dragged into this war where they, I mean, yeah, they started it, but then the eventuality is that the United States and other allied nations fought them so vigorously that they inherited a war that they had not imagined. So that during the course of the conflict, good planning is one where you're looking two, three, four years into the future. And when the Japanese in 1942 were looking into the future, the future that they envisioned was one where they maintained an oceanic empire stretching almost, well, stretching all the way to Hawaii. Um, one in which there were not formations of 300 American B-29 bombers over Japanese cities. And so the result was that they had a very effective anti-aircraft weapons. They didn't have enough of them. They had very effective fighter aircraft and they had plenty of them, but then they also had lots of territory that they had to cover with those fighter aircraft. And the Americans began bombing that focused on industrial targets that forced them into the position of dispersing their industrial production, that that dramatically shrank the output of industrial production to such a level that combat losses, they weren't irreplaceable, but they were very difficult to replace. They would eventually become irreplaceable. And in fact, when we're talking about Iwo Jima, it's not far in the future. It's just a few weeks away that the combat losses are going to become irreplaceable. Um, but the Japanese just, they didn't have a crystal ball. They couldn't see the future. They had one few, the future that they imagined looked very much different than the future that they got. And as a result of that, they were caught short on fighter interceptors and anti-aircraft armament with the result that American strategic bombing was extremely effective against Japanese cities starting in August of 1944 and stretching all the way through the following year. During that time period, American bombing of Japanese targets went from disappointing to not that bad to absolutely devastating uh, for reasons that are not really a part of what we're talking about today. But I mention all of it as a means of simply saying that the Japanese are eventually caught slightly flat-footed in being able to defend the airspace over the home islands. That's not to say that they didn't have anti-aircraft guns that put up a fight, because they did. That's not to say that they didn't have fighters that flew up to intercept our B-29s. They just couldn't deal with the flood. To put it in coarse terms, we ended up gangbanging that airspace in a way that they just couldn't deal with. And in the end, it turns out Iwo Jima with hundreds of P-51 Mustangs and P P-61 Black Widows and, and other aircraft based on it, those aircraft were far less needed than we had thought that they would be. If we do go back to the show in episode number nine, it's uh, May of 1945, and the Marines are on Okinawa. There's a bit of dialogue from Snafu where he says, the Japanese are fighting for their own turf now, so they're only going to get meaner and meaner with each step that we go. Was the show correct to imply that the fighting intensified as they got closer to the Japanese home islands? Yes, it is. And it is correct to characterize the fighting in that way because of the fact that we were, the closer we got, dealing with stronger and stronger Japanese military forces. We were also beginning to deal with civilians in meaningful numbers. And also Japanese supply lines were shortening. And as your enemy supply lines shorten, your enemy gets stronger. As your supply lines lengthen, you get a little bit weaker. The result was that each of these battles presented 
the way that each of these islands presented battle was that the Japanese fought from very advantaged positions, not in an overall um, metaphorical or holistic sense, because the Japanese, after all, were in the broadly disadvantaged positions that they were being attacked on all fronts by very powerful enemies. Yes, that's true. But at the same time, we've talked about Peleliu in, in deep detail. That is a battle where a weaker enemy force, simply using terrain, was able to impose combat on our forces in a way that was extremely costly. And so, yeah, as we crept closer and closer to the Japanese home islands, as we attacked and captured one Japanese island outpost after another, we're, we, we, we were seeing a greater intensity of combat. We were seeing a greater loss of life. You can certainly certainly see that in this broad escalation of the loss of life that occurs from one island to the next. Uh, over the course of the Peleliu battle, we lose 1,794 people killed. Over the course of the 36 days of the Iwo Jima battle, we lose nearly 7,000 killed. That's a broad escalation. And with Okinawa, we will see the costliest battle of them all for the American military during the Second World War. We'll see 12,000 killed over the course of a battle that I mean, you could say 82 days, you could say 92 days. We'll get to that later on. But you're seeing an escalation of the intensity of combat, the intensity of terrain. The, um, the, you're seeing an escalation of the size of casualties that are being sustained on both sides, for the record. You're seeing escalations across the board. When you add to that this incredibly important factor of Okinawa is a part of Japan. The same could be said about about Iwo Jima technically, because Iwo Jima belongs to this overall, the Japanese regional organizational element that they use the most reliably is called the prefecture. And technically Iwo Jima belongs to the Tokyo prefecture, but it was an island that had two tiny villages with a handful of civilians in them each that were all evacuated before the battle. So yeah, when we landed on Iwo Jima, we were landing on Japanese soil, but it wasn't a, a landmass with a significant civilian population. Okinawa, on the other hand, was because Okinawa had over 100,000 civilians living on it. We had encountered civilians on a meaningful level during the Battle of Saipan, but Saipan wasn't a pre part of a prefecture of Imperial Japan. Saipan was territory that had been given to the Japanese as a result of the, um, the League of Nations Pacific Mandate, and so the Japanese had the Marianas. And so Saipan had military facilities and it had colonists on it, colonists who were engaged in farming and a number of other things. And we encountered them on that island with tragic results. And Saipan provided a whisper of the, of the tragedy that would unfold in Okinawa, where we would experience an even larger population of Japanese civilians. And there was every expectation that the next operation, because Okinawa is the last battle, but if the war had continued, which it could have, we would have conducted the Operation Olympic, opposed amphibious landing, on Kyushu, the southernmost of the Japanese home islands, beginning on November 1st, 1945. And then we would have conducted the Operation um, Coronet, opposed amphibious landings, on the Tokyo Plain on March 1st, 1946. And those operations, which did not happen, thank God, they would have been the great Armageddon of the 20th century because they would have been American military catastrophes, first and foremost. There's absolutely no question about that. And then the cat catastrophes would have also resulted in the deaths of millions of Japanese people. Uh, that's a subject for another day. But I circle it back to Okinawa in saying that 
we encountered a very large civilian population on Japanese soil on that island. The Japanese military in uniform fought tooth and nail for every inch of the island using an extremely coherent strategy that was interrupted only by one moment of incoherence. And the result was the battle went on for a very long period of time and a very large number of people died as a result of it. What was that one moment of incoherence that you mentioned? The Japanese command structure on the island is, of course, led by um, Japanese Lieutenant General named Shijima. He was following orders to resist the Americans using the strategy that had been so rewarding on Peleliu, for example, and that is the strategy of fight the attritional defensive campaign. Do not organize broad, um, aggressive actions that incorporate maneuver, incorporate calling on your forces to come out of cover and counterattack the Americans. Don't do that because they are wasteful of personnel resources. And for every individual on the island means that the, the Americans will have to kill another person. For every individual to put up their utmost fight um, in the most efficient way possible delays the Americans and every delay delays the landings on Kyushu. The Japanese knew that was coming. The Japanese knew that war would eventually come to the home islands. They wanted to delay that as long as possible. And so they understood this coherent strategy of, of deep, attritional defensive battle making use of terrain. They understood that that is the only method that the Americans have a difficult time with. And my God, they were right because they beat the living shit out of us on that island. Week in, week out. And it was only then because there was a, another commander on the island who had Lieutenant General Shijima's ear and talked him into launching an aggressive counterattack, an aggressive attack by maneuver at night. Um, it was only then that the Japanese fell back to the old ideas that had rewarded them so handsomely early in the war, and that was aggressive maneuver warfare. They had used that to great effect against us in the Philippines, against us on, you know, on other occasions, against the British, against the Chinese. They had used these, uh, these aggressive tactics over and over again. And in many ways, there was a romanticism and a heroism associated with that that just wasn't there for attritional defensive warfare where you're huddling in a bunker or in a cave. And the result was that Japanese morale weakened to a meaningful and observable degree as a result of the adoption of that strategy. And that when morale begins to corrode, everything begins to corrode. And the, and the Japanese on the island were recognizing that. I think also part of the reason that a decision is made sort of midstream to launch one big Hail Mary counterattack was that from the outset of the Okinawa battle, things had not gone well. The Americans conduct a landing. They come ashore. The Japanese basically let us get ashore and then absolutely hammer us. And then they unleash kamikaze forces with great effect on us. They, for example, send the super battleship Yamato toward Okinawa. It is ultimately then sunk in combat before it even made it halfway to Okinawa um, on April 7th, 1945. And the result is that the Japanese, they're fighting us. And... We were, we were no pushover in 1945. The American way of war in 1945 was extremely powerful, just as the Japanese way of war was. It's just that their powerful way of war was one that could not live much longer. And they understood that. And so 
they have some setbacks early in the battle that begin the process of corroding morale. The, the battle then descends into week after week attritional, attritional campaign where the Americans are, are inexorably pushing forward. And the, they eventually give in to this idea of launching a big counterattack. They launch in this counterattack. It's between 20 and 25,000 men are thrown into the jaws of combat during this um, counterattack. And the counterattack is, is repelled with extremely high loss of life. And there are people who estimate, granted, this is a bit of a fool's errand to estimate how much longer would that battle have gone on had it not been for the fact that they squandered about 20,000 people in the counterattack. I'm quite comfortable in thinking that it could have gone on another 30 days. And if it had gone on another 30 days, holy God, what would it have looked like? It all already looks like Armageddon with it having lasted up to, what is it, June 18, June 21st. It's declared secure on June 21st. If it had lasted through to the end of July, what would, what would that body count have looked like? And how how would the outcome of the Pacific War be different? Not that I want to send us off on on that distraction right now, but at the same time, it's certainly worth mentioning that the Japanese followed the coherent strategy for the most part in the Iwo Jima battle, um, and they imposed attritional warfare on the American forces. American forces who, although extremely heavily armed, struggled to deal with attritional defensive warfare. And because of that, the battle ends up taking a very long period of time. Depending on what source you want to consult, if you want to just take carve out the fighting on Iwo Jima proper, you can comfortably say it's an 82-day-long campaign. However, that's ignoring some peripheral things that are of, of great import, most notably that um, a series of actions unfold immediately before it with landings beginning on an adjacent group of islands that technically belong to um, Okinawa called Karamoreto, where the U.S. Army 77th Division conducts imposed amphibious landings on uh, an island called Tokushiki and a few other islands in the Karamoreto group as a preliminary to the landings on Okinawa. And that then pulls the length of the battle closer to a 90-day periodization. And that's why I tend to use 90 days on a rough basis with the knowledge that there are some actions that come before the Operation Iceberg landings, the main, the first day of, of the Okinawa battle, April 1st, 1945. There's a preliminary, and then there's some holdover as some holdouts don't come out initially. It's not significant the way that it was in the Philippines or on Guam, but there are some holdouts on Okinawa. And so the result is I'm very comfortable just saying it's basically a 90-day campaign. And during that 90-day time period, 12,000 Americans lose their life and over 120, maybe 130,000 Japanese people lose their lives. It's not funny anymore at this point. Not that it ever was, but it's suddenly becoming biblical. As we, with each um, island campaign, the casualties are soaring. And one thing that I have found too, I may, may have even mentioned it. No, I don't think I mentioned this when we talked about Peleliu, but it comes up at Peleliu, it comes up again after Okinawa, but then it gets kind of lost because after Okinawa, there's no more ground combat. But in the aftermath of Peleliu, I have found too, well, I did mention this because we talked about the people who like to point out that Peleliu wasn't necessary, the people that sort of like to Monday morning quarterback the, the Palau operation. And, and something that they tend to point out is they 
they settle very quickly into a comfortable theme, a theme that is used over and over again as a very poor way of understanding military history and something that stretches all the way back to the way that we have understood the Civil War. And that is they tend to use this metaphor of of lions being led by lambs or donkeys or lions being led by donkeys, as the British sometimes put it, meaning that you have a heavily bureaucratized group of leaders who are isolated from combat, that don't understand combat, aren't seeing or experiencing the realities of combat. And so they're easily and wantonly um, sacrificing lives without a care in the world for it, which is a theme that I argue becomes cemented into the way that we look at military history when we get to the Vietnam era, meaning that we are no longer allowed to look at the military history in any, in any other way than the way where we look at the leadership was stupid and foolish and made the following mistakes. Well, the reality was, how was any of this predictable? What military professional had a course of study that would have prepared him for this? And the answer is no one, absolutely no one. They, what they had, and I mean, the military professionals who were fighting these battles are people who had gone through the service academies in the aftermath of the First World War. And so they learned a lot about World War I, and the conflict that we thought was the, war, the one to end all conflicts. And this conflict is so much worse, and it's quite a bit different than World War I as well. And so the results from my reckoning, and again, I've, I don't know combat. I was never in the military, but I have spent a lifetime attempting to understand the Second World War and its history. And what it looks like to me is that everyone was caught flat-footed and off guard on both sides by absolutely everything, and all of the suffering surprised everyone. Well, last time we talked, we talked a little bit about some of the differences between the German and, and Japanese prisoners, the way that Brandon Brothers depicts the German prisoners versus the Pacific and the Japanese. And it's in this episode, in episode nine on Okinawa, where we see the first prisoners. They're actually held by the American army and not the Marines. And it's also, like you mentioned earlier, um, we see Japanese civilians there as well. But you also mentioned that uh, Iwo Jima had been evacuated, but Saipan had some civilians. Was this then not the first time that the American Marines had come across civilians and prisoners, or was that just kind of for the show, for the people in our show, this is the first time that they've come across them? This was the first time they had come across them, they meaning our cast of characters. Uh, it's worth pointing out that we, we collected Japanese prisoners of war in almost every campaign. I actually think it's every campaign. Uh, however, most of the prisoners, for example, 2nd Marine Division conducts the oper Operation Galvanic Landings against the uh, former British Gilbert Islands, uh, Terra and Macon in late 1943. And when they do that, particularly the 2nd Marine Division on Tarawa, they collect up a couple hundred prisoners at the end of the battle. None of them are Japanese. They're Koreans. Co the Korean Peninsula had been annexed into the Empire of Japan in 1910. And Korean people were technically as subjects of the Japanese empire, they served in the Japanese military and they were in some, there were some volunteers, but for the most part, they were functionally just conscripted into the Japanese military. And for the most part, the Japanese were slightly untrusting of them and assigned them to engineering units only. And so what you typically see are men in Japanese uniforms who are of Korean ancestry, who were conscripts. So they had a little bit less skin in the game, if to use a rather coarse expression. And the result was that we had an experience of what we felt was the rewarding reality of we collected their prisoners on the battlefield, but we kind of didn't. So we had 
we were collecting prisoners all along. Sometimes they were Japanese, but usually they were not. They were Koreans. We had experienced Japanese civilians um, in significant numbers during the Marianas campaign on, on Guam and Tinian to a lesser degree, but we experienced them in significant numbers on Saipan. And that's a battle that's fought from June 15th to July 9th, 1944. And over the course of the Saipan battle, the way that the Army and the Marine Corps both interact with the civilians is, is one that it, it provides dramatic foreshadowing for what we're going to get on Okinawa insofar as it was a very troubling um, interaction, meaning that the civilians, for the most part, huddled in caves and at the end of the battle committed suicide in very large numbers. We still to this day don't know how many Japanese colonists on Saipan killed themselves at the end of the battle. Most people tend to think that it's around a thousand and it was done infamously from people who flung themselves off the heights on the northern end of Saipan at a place called Marky Point where there's a significantly tall hill massif with enough verticality and a couple of hundred feet of fall where people jumped from a hill onto ground below them to kill themselves. And then there are also cliffs on the seashore where the people jumped into the water and hammer famously this incident where they depict one woman throwing herself to her death. That should have provided ample warning for what we were going to get on Okinawa. And the military was prepared for that because the military understood that when we land on Okinawa, we're going to be dealing with civilians. We're going to be dealing with them in large numbers. It's, it's, it was no shock, no surprise. The strange thing is, is that it fascinates me because the more I read and study about people in leadership positions during the Second World War, the more I read and learn about them being these extremely intelligent people. And that they were less parochial as they sometimes get depicted, that they were among the best and brightest in the country. They were some of the most, in, some great intellectual minds. All of it caught them off guard. And they were planning for it. And they had experience already, experiences even to include the experience of civilian suicides on Saipan. And still, what happened on Okinawa blew everyone's mind because nobody expected it to be that bad. It was, it was, it was kind of, if I could put it into a, a really terrible perspective. The Japanese militarized or they um, nationalized, they activated all reserve elements on Okinawa before the invasion took place because they knew an invasion was coming. And then when Americans landed on March 26th on Tokushiki and Kurimoreto, they had proof. Oh yeah, they're here. They're not on Okinawa yet, but they're just right over there, just 15 miles away. They're going to be here any day now. So when everyone was activated with the landings at Kurimoreto, like policemen are activated. They had like a regular civilian defense force that was activated, but they activated all of the students at the at two girls' schools that were on the island, the, Okinex, the Okinawan Prefectural Girls Normal School, and then one other school, and I just don't remember the precise name of it. Uh, forgive me for that. But there were two girls' schools, and girls' schools were schools that were made up of girls between the ages of 11 and 16. And so these girls were activated. They were taken to a place on the southern end of the island called Himiuri, where they functioned as medical orderlies during the course of the campaign that would follow. And by the end of the campaign, almost all of them had been killed. And the ones who lost their lives, lost their lives in the very closing days of the battle when the Japanese military forced them out of the caves and they were killed 
not purposely by the American military, but they were collateral damage during an extremely violent concluding phase of a modern land battle. And it was with the result that out of a group of, gosh, I think it was 300, 300 girls, a handful of them survived the experience. This is the ugly reality of the way that the civilian experience is as much a part of the Okinawa battle as the military experience. And so it, it, it helps me understand the way that the, the experience of the war scarred the Japanese people. Um, and I, I can certainly respect that. The American military in the aftermath of Okinawa suddenly had to step back and take a deep breath because we understood that we were about to conduct this uh, landing in the Japanese home islands. Because keep in mind that when the Okinawa battle, be, when it ends, uh, let's just go with, so June 21st, I was going to go with um, the day that General Lieutenant General Simon Bolivar Buckner Jr. gets killed in Okinawa, which is June 18th. Let's go with June 21st. November 1st was to be the first day of Operation Olympic, the, the invasion of Kyushu. Um, the American military had to, re, had to confront this reality after Okinawa that Kyushu is going to be much, dip, much more difficult and it's got a lot more people living on it. It's a much, much bigger landmass with a lot more people landing on it. I went through this experience that to me was astonishing and breathtaking in 2006. I've been to Okinawa a couple dozen times, I guess. And, and this one visit, I just had the circumstances were just right to where I was flying from the airport at Naha, Okinawa to the airport on Kyushu, the main civilian airport, which is just off of Kagoshima Bay near the town of Kagoshima itself. When the airplane took off, it flew toward Kyushu, basically flying up. The aircraft kind of slid off to the Pacific Ocean side of Okinawa, just off to the east side of the island. I was sitting on the left side of the airplane in a window seat and looking down. And I was, as, as we were flying north, I was checking off all the land masses like Hacksaw Ridge and Kanishi Ridge and um, the Yezidake and the Yuzidake, all these land masses that will ultimately become these infamous fighting, lo- that, that, that became inf- infamous fighting locations on Okinawa. I picked out Shuri Castle, where there was a reproduction of Shuri Castle that was there that burned up in a fire last year, strangely. But then I picked out Kakazu Ridge, and I was looking at the little undulating folds of terrain that are these battles that were just sucking the life out of these combat divisions. Just I picked out, for example, Sugarloaf Hill on Okinawa, which is near Naha Main Place Mall now. It's easy to pick out because there's a big water tank on top of it. And I looked down at it and I remembered how basically the 6th Marine Division destroyed itself trying to capture that hill. And it looked like the tiny, most meaningless little lump of terrain I'd ever seen. Then we passed Okinawa and continued to fly. And when we got to Kyushu, the terrain looked so much bigger. I was like, my God, it would never have worked. The terrain was so much more intense on it is so much more intense on Kyushu. We would have landed with a massive invasion force. The Japanese uniform military on the island was so much bigger than we expected. And then the, the civilians on the island would have fought us tooth and nail. And I think it is for the better of both of our nations that that invasion never happened. Wow. I mean, when you when you explain it like that, it makes – not to spoil alert to the end of the war and what happened, but, you know, I mean – it start to make sense, you know, these making some of these decisions for an alternative to actually landing on the island. 
that's that's why it was fascinating to me because at the the time period that um I was an undergraduate from 1991 to 1995 was it yeah 95 no 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 that was when I was in grad school I was an undergrad from 87 to 91 I was in grad school with working on my history masters from 1992 until 1996 that's it and when I was in grad school working on the masters it was during the time period of the 50th anniversary of the war and we got to the 50th anniversary of both Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And the inevitable conversation that came up during that time period was uh, over whether or not it was right to have dropped the atomic bomb. And the conversations became these conversations of right and wrong. They became these moral questions that interested me very much back during that time period. It was a time it was a time period when I look back on it now as the good old days when I was outraged by what a lot of um, postmodernists were saying about the atomic bomb, um, because what they were saying was they called and they entirely called emphasis to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They acted like the 69 other cities that were destroyed by conventional bombing. They acted like they didn't exist. They acted like the lives that were lost, um, over 700,000 of them. They acted like those lives didn't matter because the only lives that tended to matter to them were the lives that were lost as a result of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so it was a very awkward sort of contortion for them to call all this emphasis to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I get it. It's nuclear weapons. Yes, we should pay attention to that. However, it felt weird to completely neglect and ignore everybody else. And it also felt very weird to me because I understood very clearly what the alternative was, because the alternative that we were considering was we had two alternatives. Number one was invasion of the Japanese home island, which would have been a catastrophe that would have resulted in at least a million Japanese deaths. The second alternative that we were considering, which was the Nimitz plan, which was a naval blockade of the Japanese home islands, which would have imposed the conditions of starvation on millions of people. I think at least being conservative, I believe at least three million people would have been starved to death in calendar year 1946 by the blockade. And to me, that is fiendish inhumanity that I am glad that the American nation did not exact on the Japanese people. And that's why, to me, the three options then are atomic bomb. Yeah, you're going to kill about a quarter of a million people uh, as a result of the explosion and radiation illnesses. Or uh, invasion, kill about a million civilians. Or naval blockade, kill about three million. And so it felt very, very bizarre for me in the 1990s as um, a young graduate student who was extremely interested in World War II history to listen to the way that the, the conversation played out. And the, inevitably, the direction that the conversation took was this peculiar forecast of where we are today in that this book that powerfully informed the main point of HBO's miniseries, The Pacific, which was this book called Race and War by jo the, the late Dr. John Dower, which was a book that I mean, I'll sum it up. If you haven't read it, it's basically the United States carried out the war against Japan the way that it did because it was a bunch of racists, which I believe is um, an atrocious trivialization of extremely complicated matters um, for the purposes of uh, jumping on a very headliney bandwagon that is now, God, 30 years old. And yet the Pacific believed in that very deeply. So that's why... The Okinawa episode of uh, episodes of this series, I think, are really important for sort of the lasting message that's sent by the series because they were presented to us. The send up that we get 
is that Okinawa becomes the heart of darkness and that it's all doom and gloom. Trust me, I struggled to find anything positive in Okinawa. There's just nothing positive to be had in that battle. It's human suffering from beginning to end of the greatest proportion, especially for the civilians who were the butterflies in the hurricane. Eugene Sledge provided a narrative of the experience of combat on Okinawa that is one that testifies to and just the difficulties of the campaign and the human experience of struggling with those difficulties and the traumatizing experience of having been a part of that campaign. That's why I guess I find the the way that the miniseries approaches Okinawa, I find it to be something that I can't just sit back, pop some popcorn and enjoy the show. It's something that's far more intellectual than that, as I think it should be for everyone that watches it. Well, you mentioned uh, Eugene Sledge on Okinawa, and in episode nine, there's a few uh, little clues that you can get for the timeline of the battle as uh, Sledge is tallying the days in his Bible. I counted, mentioned in the show that they landed there on Easter Sunday, April 1st, and then the tally marks that Sledge has made uh, say 60 days from arrival to a note where he had written in there that combat was over, and then another 51 days after that. So uh, April 1st, 60 days after that would be like May 31st, the combat ending, and then another 51 days after that would mean they stayed there until July 21st. Not necessarily, I mean, that was just what was shown there, not necessarily everybody, but at least as far as Sledge is concerned. Is that a roughly accurate timeline for the Battle of Okinawa? It is. And to a certain degree, you could say that the Battle of Okinawa continues today. I, I know that sounds like a little tongue-in-cheek, but forces had to remain on that island in the aftermath of hostilities. The hostilities are recognized as having ended the day that Lieutenant General Ushijima commits seppuku and kills himself June 21st, 1945. Troops had to remain on the island, and they did remain on the island even in the aftermath of the battle, and some even remained on the island until the aftermath of the conflict. My grandfather, for example, Chief Carpenter's mate, Joe Wilson Morgan Sr., he served in the 17th Construction Battalion. He um, came to Okinawa during the Okinawa battle, and he didn't come home until 1946. And that's because he was involved in important functions like road building and improving runways and improving sewage systems and building camps and building displaced person centers. He was doing a lot of a lot of what the CBs did, and that was a lot of construction on that island, which is what kept him there even after the war. But it is noteworthy that the American military remains on Okinawa to this very day under circumstances that are not entirely popular and not without controversy, because to this day, some Japanese don't want us there at all, and some Japanese will do anything they can to keep us there forever. And that's why I find that the, the modern era informs the World War II era in this very poignant way, in that the, the American military had this plan moving forward to get all, um, all of our forces off of Okinawa like back in 2012, 2013, we began to prepare Guam and Tinian for the forces. We're going to move them from Okinawa to the Marianas. And then the Japanese government came back to us because we have bases on Okinawa now, particularly Kadena Air Force Base. And there's a Marine Corps airfield and um, the big Marine um, camp, which is Camp Kinzer. They 
they wanted those moved because in the aftermath of the war, Okinawa went through this renaissance. It went through this rebirth where if you went to downtown central Okinawa, Naha, Okinawa today, it looks like you're on the Ginza in Tokyo. It's, it's a very vibrant place. It's full of light and action, a lot of people, and it's a strong economy. When these military bases were built in the aftermath of the war, they were built out in the middle of nowhere, and the sprawl of the city of Naha grew over the decades until what they eventually encompassed even Kadena Air Force Base, which is well north of Naha. And so the reality of what Okinawa was in 45 when the war ended and the reality of what Okinawa is today, they're very, very different. And Okinawa was a little bit of a backwards agrarian place in 45, and today it's a thumping and thriving metropolis with a big population and it's very very modern and it's very very nice it's one of the loveliest places on earth to go which is what is so troubling about you go there and you can't help but every now and then grin and giggle because it's a wonderful place and then you have to remind yourself of all the absolutely terrible biblical things that happened there but a certain cohort of of Okinawan people want the American military to go and the Japanese want us to stay and eventually have agreed to build us a new military base, a joint base up in the north away from all the population. And that's because they want us to stay because they're worried about the Chinese and they have every reason to be worried. A lot of people I think kind of think of history as it's in the past and it is, but it's also so much so affecting today. Absolutely. I I was teaching class the night of September 11th, 2001. I used to teach college here in the New Orleans area back before Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And I taught at night because I had a day job at a museum and I would go from the museum to the college to teach. And I taught history, obviously. And I think the night of September 11, 2001, I was supposed to talk about the progressive era in American history. And when I walked in, when I got to class, I was like, ain't nobody going to be there after what we had gone through that day 20 years ago. Blows my mind. I, I walked into class. Every damn seat was filled. And I was like, I walked in and looked at them and they all looked at me and I was like, what are you all doing here? And they were like, what happened today? And I was like, that's a good question because I'm wondering. And I found myself, I had, I wrote the word, words Al-Qaeda up on the board to start. And by the time the, the blackboard was completely full of all these names, and I drew this very careful historical timeline stretching all the way back to the Second World War, stretching back farther from there to the First World War, the Balfour Declaration, the Versailles Treaty. I had to talk about all of these 20th century events that had um, swirled together in one big gyre that had given us September 11th. And when I got in my car to drive home from class that night, that was a long, weird day 20 years ago. And I remember thinking, like, in order for people to unravel this world in which we live, their historical literacy has to be so mountainous. Most people aren't going to do it. The, in fact, the majority of people are not going to trouble themselves to unravel everything that I had basically presented in a two-hour class to help September 11th makes sense to a bunch of undergrads. And it made me it made me feel a little troubled because I was like, I know now that very few people will ever trouble themselves to learn this history. And so what will they do instead? That was a more innocent time period 20 years ago because what I see now, I remember thinking like when I was working on my master's degree and there was this sort of thriving debate about what were the actual circumstances 
of the American War in the Pacific because I, like I mentioned earlier, John Dower was a very powerful influence when I was in grad school and everyone just liked to write it off very simply and dismiss it curtly with, oh, it's racism. Moving on. I remember then thinking, wow, this is so troubling because in 25 or 30 years, how will we be balancing John Dower and his his sort of postmodernist beliefs about the racialization of the war? How will we balance that with the actual realities of it? And I remember, I think back to that now, and I was like, oh, what a dummy I was. How, how naive and foolish I was to think that people would care enough to have these debates in 30 years. Because what I find is that people largely just don't care. I find that this idea of people becoming historically literate on this subject matter is something that they they won't really reach for it if you bring it to them on a tray and drop it in front of them like you do with Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers of the Pacific they'll consume it but they kind of they kind of pushed the Pacific back a little bit because this series that I was a part of to a certain oblique sense it didn't do well it certainly, I mean, it did It did well enough for HBO to say it did well, but it wasn't great like Band of Brothers was. Band of Brothers was a home run like HBO didn't see again until Game of Thrones. And the, the, mini, and the Pacific was expensive and it did not give them the same bang for the buck that Band of Brothers did. So the result was that people just kind of like, they were, they were on the fence about the Pacific. I think it's been a, decade now, strange to think, but people have sort of like, yeah, I, I, I watched it and I kind of liked it. They don't respond the way that, to it the way that they did to Band of Brothers. And one of the things that I had always hoped, because I still believe a lot of this naive stupidity that, that these movies will make a, dis, a difference over time and that people, they will function as a beginning point by which people will unlock and begin a lifetime of greater levels of historical literacy. And um, maybe it's just because I had a bad day. I'm not feeling very positive on that note, but it's it sort of doesn't feel like that's what's playing out now. The Pacific, I think, is especially an interesting series to pay attention to. I think it's more interesting to pay attention to it than Band of Brothers because of the way that it underperformed. The Pacific did not give everyone a dose of what I think they wanted, and in this way, the Pacific um, runs in a parallel, a very interesting parallel to another, a movie that I am a massive fan of, a movie called The Thin Red Line. Maybe you've heard of it. Absolutely excellent film that also did not do well, that also underperformed, that came out almost on top of Private Ryan. And for the most part, when it was served up on a tray to everyone, they kind of pushed it back. They didn't care for it as much. And I believe it was because there was a little, there's a little bit of a sermon going on in Thin Red Line. And I think it's the same sermon that's going on in the Pacific. And I think is war, I think the sermon is war is bad. The reality is, I think that that is the only type of war movie that can be made now. One in which you come away from it meditating on human suffering, the human experience of war, the traumatizing experiences of war. You come away from these movies with those meditations and those only. There are no triumphalisms the way that there were in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, to an extent, you, you could see an echo of triumphalism even in the 1970s, a movie that I love. My favorite World War II movie of them all is a movie called The Bridge Too Far. Maybe you've seen it. Of course not. 
I can't get enough of that movie. That movie doesn't age. I can't sit through half of Private Ryan now, but I will gobble up every last damn minute of A Bridge Too Far. I love it. And I love the fact that I feel like it leaned a little bit more toward an older style of movie storytelling that looks a little bit more like the old movie Patton, where you get a little mythology and you get a little action adventure, you get a little bit of heroism and drama. There's a little sprinkling of, oh yes, war's bad and you should be cynical and you should be disenchanted too. There's a little sprinkling of that over A Bridge Too Far. But then when you get to the era of Platoon, there's a sledgehammer of war is bad and you should you should never celebrate it and it's never a source of good. It never does anything right or well. Everyone is corrupt. There is no future. It's this bizarre nihilistic way of looking at absolutely everything. And I believe all of that was projected into this series. Speaking of the series, if we go back to the last episode. So this is uh, what we see, what it's like for the main characters as the war comes to an end. They give a date of August 15th, 1945. Lucky is in the hospital. Someone comes in to announce that the Japanese have surrendered. Everyone just starts celebrating. We see Sledge, Snafu, and Bergen. They're on Okinawa when the news comes and the soldiers, I mean, they've got alcohol and a lot of explosives. So there's a lot of explosions and drinking going on. (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) What could possibly go wrong? Was that what it was like when the war came to an end? I love this I love this question because when the way that the war came to the an end has dominated our historical memory of the Second World War. I think there's one image that has done it more than anything. You know the image of the sailor kissing the nurse in New York City. I remember that when the 75th anniversary of VJ Day, when we passed that anniversary, which was, gosh, that was just last year, wasn't it? Yeah, it was just last year, last August. Gosh, just a year ago, a little over a year ago. Anyway, when we passed that anniversary, um, it kind of went by with a little bit of a whimper. People barely paid attention to it. And I spent the entire day looking at the photo of the sailor kissing the nurse. What I think I like about this one aspect of the Pacific is that it, it taps you on the shoulder and reminds you that, hey, not everybody was in uniform and still at home. There were a lot of people that were in uniform and still off in hellish god-awful places, and still off in places far, far away from from hearth and home, far away from their parents, far away from their family, far away from, many of them far away from celebrations. There was still combat action going on in New Guinea, uh, for example. We tend to focus on Okinawa as the last battle because it was one big, organized, you know, epic battle. But there was still low-grade combat going on on New Guinea and there were people, there were Americans in uniform there. And how did they greet the end of the war? Well, they greeted it the best way that they could. They said, yeah, they celebrated, but I mean, just think of how limited your celebrations are. If you're at Port Moresby, New Guinea, and uh, maybe a commanding officer lets you get a little bit of alcohol, although letting alcohol, letting the troops get alcohol is never a great idea. Nothing good ever comes from it. I sound like a Puritan, but it's true. And, There were people in uniform in places far, far away that in some cases were a year away from seeing American soil. And yeah, they celebrated and their celebration looked a lot different than that sailor in Manhattan who grabbed that nurse. There's a point in this series, I don't remember who it was, but they're on the train at the very end and they're making their way back and they were 
was it Snafu? I think one of them was uh, hitting on some girls there, and it didn't work. And he made the point, it's like, well, all the these soldiers that came back right after the war, they were they were the heroes that won the war, and then we came back what six months later, and every it's it's over, it's it's over, that that's over. And suddenly you had to be charming and polite and interesting. You had to work for it. Yeah, it's it's funny to comment on that in the um, in this era. But there's a reality to it, and that is that emotionally that was such a massive release for everyone. Because the point I make about the American experience in the Second World War is that absolutely everyone to some extent experienced it. They might not have been in uniform, but they experienced it. So we had a governor here in Louisiana named Hale Boggs, and he had a wife named Lindy, and she was great. And I knew her, and I interviewed her at one point. She was eventually the U.S. ambassador to Vatican, and uh, she was a person of notoriety. And I remember her at one point telling me a story that just blew my mind, and that was um, – I was just trying to probe around, like, what was your day-to-day experience like? I was interviewing her, but I felt sort of dragooned into interviewing her because she was basically a a famous and influential person. And I was like, this woman was stateside. What could she possibly tell me? Well, she could tell me one of the best stories I've ever heard in my life. And what she told me, she was like, she was like, yeah, I mean, my my day-to-day experience was really difficult. It's like in New Orleans, um, Higgins Industries was running um, a swing shift. So Higgins Industries ran both night and day. And she said, so there was a time period where when you draw swing shift, you didn't have like you weren't permanently on swing shift. You might draw it this month and the next month you were on day shift. And then the month after that, you went back to night shift. And so you would you would you know, vary that. And she was like the big problem that it created was that like my next door neighbor, she had two kids. Her husband was in uniform off serving and she worked at Higgins and she got on night shift. And so the way. There was a period there where my day began where the neighbor would bring her kids over and I watched her kids while she collapsed in the house and got some sleep because she had just come while the kids were sleeping. She was out at the factory working. She came home in time to get the kids up, get them dressed and get them ready. And on the weekends, they would just go over to her house and she would kind of watch them while she got some sleep when the kids weren't in school. And that one, I mean, during the summer, the kids were like, they were there every day. And so she was having to watch her neighbor's kids every day so that the neighbor could get some sleep so that she could be ready to go back up to the plant that night. And she said, yeah, and it was, that wasn't terrible. It's just that those kids ate a lot. And I was like, oh, well, I bet, especially when you get two other, some other ladies' kids in your house. And she was like, yeah. And I remember one day it was really difficult because I got my kids up, got them dressed. She brought her kids over. I got, I, you know, I was watching them. I made breakfast for all of them, including me. She said at the end of breakfast, I had to go downtown because it was the one day a week when I could buy meat because meat was rationed. And so she said, so I knew that if I didn't get there early, I'd have a position way back at the end of the line. So I wanted to kind of get there early on. So I got, I, as soon as the kids finished their breakfast, I kind of got them all ready. I got myself ready. We got on the streetcar. We went down to downtown New Orleans with ration certificates in hand. And I was a little bit later than I wanted to. And there was a long line. She said she took her position in line and then began the line began moving forward little by little by little. And then after a couple of hours, eventually there was a commotion up at the head of the line and the line broke up and she saw the doors to the market close up and everybody sort of began to, the line began to break up and walk off. And she stopped somebody. She was like, what's going on? Did they close? And, and the guy said, yeah, the president just died. And I was like, whoa. I mean, and I, and so the, the war is just so 
broad and encompassing that I have a tendency through my natural interest to focus on the combat fighting forces and what they went through. And I appreciated that opportunity to have a powerful story remind me of, of just what the civilians were going through. And so everybody, to some extent, experienced this conflict. And this conflict, we live in the shadow of it to this very day. I mean, my God, we have bases in Germany. We have bases in Japan, including Okinawa. We live in a complicated geopolitical world that was, in part, created by the circumstances of the Second World War. Uh, the reason I want people, I want series like this to get made, I want people to watch them, and I want people to, to increase their levels of historical literacy about the subject is because it's too big. I watch the people who haven't devoted their life to understanding it in an intimate way. I watch them in the way that they talk about World War II because I see them on Facebook all day long. I see them posting these catty and superficial stories that obliquely refer to World War II history, and they often refer to it in distorted and mythologized ways, and it's troubling to me because I feel like we all owe it to what the country went through uh, to understand the subject better. Yeah. And I mean, like, like you're saying, it's not just in the combat. It's, it was world war. It affected everybody regardless. Absolutely. And, yeah. and that's why everyone has an interest in it. And that's why the recent sort of racialized politicization of the subject matter is something that, I mean, I'm not entirely con comfortable with that because I believe that everybody experienced it on an almost equal basis. Um, it fascinates me to watch the, the way that the triumphalist, the triumphalist and patriotic way that the war was remembered in the years immediately after the war, which was syrupy and sweet and like way over the top with patriotism. Um, I look at that and I go, yeah, I can see why that era begot the era when I was in grad school, where there was a little bit more of an intellectual critique of that way of looking at the conflict. It's like the, you know, the George Washington never told a lie and he chopped down a cherry tree. That's the, the way that the way that American history was taught using that sort of, of mechanism. I can see why this this more academic and more intellectual mechanism ultimately ends up being used. But I can also see how it has been taken to this nth degree of extremism. And I feel like the Pacific miniseries reflects that to a certain degree, because the Pacific miniseries in many ways conformed to uh, a very traditional way of producing a World War II movie in the post-Vietnam era, and that is that it at all times must be the heart of darkness. It must be cynicism, disenchantment. It must be war is terrible, even in World War II, which sometimes awkwardly and strangely overlooks some of the reasons why we got into the conflict, which to me, at least, even after all these years, I still see justifying reasons for American in intervention in the conflict. Like, well, like any movie or, or show or anything like that, there's, it's entertainment, but also it's impossible to not be affected by the opinions of whoever is creating that. Um, because at the end of the day, you are telling us, I mean, you're, it's entertainment. So you are telling a story, you're going to deviate from straight up facts. Obviously we've talked about a lot of those, um, but it, you know, and it is also trying to tell a story. And so it's going to have some of those opinions put in there just naturally. I mean, it's just the way it is. And every entertainment product wrestles with that subject to an extent, even 
Um, I, as you know, I work on Call of Duty and we have a Call of Duty that's um, being released here in just a couple of months. And with my development team, we went through the exact same thing. It's weird. I had the experience of, of having gone through a not entirely positive experience of being a part of this early production team for the Pacific. And we went through things then 10 years ago that I have gone through in almost the exact same pattern with Call of Duty. It's that whenever you try to tell a story that relates to an historical event, you're going to deal with, to some degree, politicization. You're going to deal with, to some degree, um, creating fiction out of nonfiction. And no entertainment product is ever going to be perfect. Some reach for perfection and present themselves as achieving it, but none of them ever really get there. I remember in the immediate aftermath of Saving Private Ryan when it came out, that the overall acclaim, the, the broad acclaim of Private Ryan was that, oh, this is the most realistic thing that has ever been presented in movies. And Private Ryan is so full of historical inaccuracies and distortions that I can't even sit through it anymore. So even the projects that serve it up to us as here's a perfect example of, of authenticity, they aren't there. I'm, I remember that was the big acclaim that uh, came with Platoon when it premiered and it won the Academy Award for Best Picture. And ever since then, people have treated Platoon like it was a documentary and it was not that at all. At the uh, end of the series, we do get a brief explanation of text that explains what happened to each of the main characters after the war. Eugene Sledge earned a PhD, wrote a memoir called With the Old Breed that was used in the creation of the series. Bob Leckie marries his sweetheart, Vera Keller, and also wrote a memoir called Helmet from My Pillow that was used from the creation of the series as well. John Bassalone was posthumously awarded the Navy Cross, as you mentioned earlier, and a Purple Heart for his actions on Iwo Jima. Lena found out that her husband died on her 32nd birthday, and despite only being married for seven months, she never remarried. Is all that true? It is all true. Yeah. Sledge taught at a little liberal arts college in central Alabama, and I suppose now is as good a time as any to mention it, but yeah, I'm an Alabamian. And I went to the University of Alabama. I started there in 1987. And when I was there, I was dating a girl who was from Coleman, Alabama. And she attended uh, Montevallo College, which is the school where Eugene B. Sledge taught. And if you don't mind me, I'll make it quick and painless. But it's too hilarious for me not to tell the story. I would drive from where the university is in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, um, to see her every weekend at Montevallo. And... She was a science major and over and over again on my visits there, she was saying like, you know what? You should meet my biology professor. You should meet Dr. Sledge. And I was like, why? And she was like, well, you're because she knew I was a history major. She knew I was interested in World War II history. And she said, yeah, he was in the war. And I was like, oh, really? What? I was like, what did he do? And I, I didn't know he was. And the book was out, but I didn't know. And she was like, well, I don't know what he did. And I was like, well, I mean, was he in the Army? He was the Navy? And she's like, I don't know, but you should meet him. I think you'd like him. I went in May 1987. I went, was that 87? No, that was 88. May 1988, I went to a, um, I went down to Montevallo to see her. And it was a Memorial Day weekend barbecue. And they had live music and barbecue out on the quad at Montevallo. And I walked out there and she went, oh, there's Dr. Sledge. And she dragged me over to meet Eugene Bondren Sledge. And she introduced him and he, and, she, and he looked at her. Oh, you told me about him, didn't you? Yeah. And he's like, you're in Tuscaloosa. Yes, sir. I'm in Tuscaloosa. 
And he was like, oh, very nice to meet you. And I was like, oh, okay, nice to meet you. So you were in the war. And you're like, yeah. Can, and I think about it to this day. And I'm like, how embarrassing. I went, so you were in the war to Eugene Sledge. He said yes, being very, very gentlemanly about it. And I was like, were you in the army? As if I hadn't been dumb enough, I then asked him if he was in the army. And he said, no, I was in the Marine Corps. And I was like, oh, okay, great. And then I asked him if he was on Guadalcanal. And he said no, but his best friend was. And then he, for about 30 minutes, told me a little bit about K-35, Peleliu, and Okinawa. And he mentioned his book. And the following week, I bought the book and read it. And then you felt rather silly for asking the stupidest person on planet Earth. And I, I at least it was, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know Sid Phillips then. And I didn't know like RV Bergen then or Harry Bender, or all these other guys that were, that were featured in the series that were either K35 or H21. I didn't know any of them at that point, but I would ultimately meet them. And thankfully, mercifully, I was a bit more of a conscious human being when I met them. So I didn't make an ass of myself, but Dr. Sledge was very, very polite to me. And the one and only time I ever met him. So that's a brush with greatness that I think about a lot because that is the defining personal narrative of the American experience in the Pacific War. You never know who you're going to meet sometimes. That's fascinating. Wow. Well, now that we have a chance, we've had the chance to chat about the entire series. If you had to pick a favorite episode, which one would it be and why? Episode two for the combat on Guadalcanal. I mean, the depiction of combat, I feel like, was was particularly arresting. I am not going to say that it was really all that historically accurate. There are some historical inaccuracies in it. For example, during the Battle of Henderson Field sequence, when you see Basalone machine gunning down these Japanese attackers, the numbers that are depicted are greatly in excess of the actual numbers. And I say that self-consciously because I don't want to detract from the man's action. The man was still enormously brave. The action is still noteworthy on every level. It's just that it often troubles me that very often filmmakers and video game makers, they feel that it's not enough and they feel that they have to exaggerate and they have to make it bigger, which is a very entertainment industry to do and a very entertainment industry thing to do to something that actually happened. Um, and I don't want to sit here and futz over the difference between 30 dead bodies and 100 dead bodies, but I do find those scenes to be very compelling in the way that they were depicted. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you said it perfectly. I think that that's something that's very common. It's you have the historically accurate side in that way and, and filmmakers looking at it from how does this look compositionally in the in the frame or does this look like enough or, you know, that that sort of approach to it to help push that narrative even more right and i understand i've been and i when i was younger i remember being all fussy about that and and surly about it and now that i've been around the entertainment industry a little bit longer i understand a little bit more about what the needs of storytelling are and how people who are gifted and skilled at storytelling they will have to turn to these mechanisms of getting the story out there and telling it and that Sometimes being historically accurate is not the right way to go. At least not 100% historically accurate is not the way to go. I feel like lightning's going to strike me for saying that, but it's true. It's true. That 
if like for example saving private ryan which to this day people treat it like it was a documentary when it was it was fiction that was loosely based on something that actually happened and the more i've been around it that the more i think that might be the way to go rather than picking people who actually lived and depicting them in circumstances the circumstances like a battle that actually happened it might be um more difficult for the storyteller to get to where they need to go and that it might be more convenient just to create fictional characters inspired by uh nonfiction. I, I can see that now but I still I still feel like you don't have to go through these sort of naked exaggerations to make people perk up and pay attention. As you were saying that, one thing that came to mind, I talked with uh, Dr. Harden, who was the historical consultant on the movie The Alamo. And something that he had said was, you know, his job is to let the director know when they're going to be diverging from history. And the one of the I don't remember the exact phrasing that he said, but it was something along the lines of end of the day, this is a movie. And if it's not entertaining, people aren't going to watch it and we're not going to be making any more. <laughs> right. So at end of the day, it has to be entertaining. And so you have to have some of those story elements in there that are going to deviate from history. Yeah, you got to succeed if you want to make more. That's like a very good friend. A very good friend of mine is an historian at Pearl Harbor. And that continues to be a subject that I am deeply interested in. And the museum where I used to work, we had a premiere event for the movie Pearl Harbor, the great atrocity against humanity there that occurred in 2001. I would love to talk to you about that movie sometime. (laughs) That would be nothing but fun right there. (laughs) I'd have to not use profanity. I'd have to tell myself no profanity. Anyway, (laughs) well, you know, a a smart and there's an intelligent conversation to be had about that subject that we should have at a later date. But anyway, my buddy, um, who's a historian at University of Arizona, he was an historical consultant on that movie, which, as you know, is a landmark of bad. It is best known for being like unspeakably bad. And what he tells everyone is that they, I was brought on the project to inform the historical accuracy of the project. They gave me a script. I marked it up and turned it back into them. I was not the executive producer and I was not the director. They made the movie they wanted to make for the reasons that they had. And it turned out the way that it did. And I could tell that for him, that was a rehearsed speech that he had to deliver a lot. <laughs> yeah. He had to deliver all the time. And I could tell that it broke his heart a little bit, but just to put it in con um, in a contrast, there is a movie that I, I quite like called Tora Tora Tora, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which almost perfectly it well, I don't want to say almost perfect. It it is far more beholden to political accuracy than the 2001 movie Pearl Harbor was. And it is something that is for the most part historically accurate. It's got a lot of problems. It doesn't have nearly as many problems as the 2001 movie, but it's got a lot of problems. And that movie if it was released today, it would fail wildly. It's unwatchable. I don't think a contemporary audience could sit through that movie because that movie is some sort of like tormenting three and a half hours long. It had an intermission, as was common in the 1960s and 70s. Um, and it introduces way too many characters. There's way too much going on. You ask way too much of the audience. You have to give them an intermission so that they can go pee just to get through the stupid thing. And 
I don't think we can do that today. I think that's a, an era that has left just like the era of the silent movie. And with that being the case, it might be the only way that we can present long form historical subject matter to a viewing audience is through something like Band of Brothers or the Pacific. Yeah. You know, you have to let them Game of Thrones their way through the series, make it possible, like later on, binge it with, with there's a snowstorm or a hurricane if you want to, or you can watch it little by little and provide a coherence from one episode to the next where each episode has a beginning, middle and end. Your storytelling adheres to beginning, middle and end principles for each episode and people can take it little by little and get all the way through it, which was, I think, accomplished so well with Band of Brothers. That might be the only way that we can do this in the future. Um, because certainly the Tora 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 model is, I don't think it's on the table anymore. No, I don't think so. I think a lot of that has changed even just with the streaming world now where, you know, a lot more things are episodic. And that's just, I think you're right. I think that's the way of the future, which is almost good in a way, though, because then you get, you know, 10 episodes, you know, 10 hours of room to tell the story instead of just a couple. Yeah, even if you dump something miserable on them like Torah, 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 and you dump like a three-hour runtime on them. That asks a lot because they're going to be tempted to, to tackle that in one sitting, whereas a 10-part miniseries, they definitely won't attempt that. It fascinates me that it becomes a matter of what is the most effective way for us to present historical subject matter. Because one observation that I have to make is that as much as I would love to imagine a world where everyone becomes a history major as an undergrad – and everyone comes out on the other end of their undergraduate degree with a history BA and a sophisticated and nuanced understanding of historical subject matter. As much as I'd like to imagine that, that is, that's not going to happen because that's, that's basically my science fiction. You know, in science fiction, what you want to imagine is this, this world where everyone's competent and everything's doing, everyone's doing consequential things. That's all science fiction, basically. And that's kind of what I want to imagine as hope for humankind. And I, I have to accept that that's just not the way that it works, that it becomes more of the Huxleyan vision, the Aldous Huxley vision in, depicted in Brave New World, where it's a little bit of people are uh, numbing themselves and people are superficial and people contenting themselves with superficial trains. God, this just became very depressing. I don't mean to do that to you, but at the same time, I, I, I feel like it's important within this discussion to say that what does the future look like for the way that people remember the history of the Second World War? Yeah, there are going to be pinheads like me out there that do a, I mean, that's all I do is I sit around this house and read about that subject all day long every day. Not everybody's going to do that. Not everybody can do that. But the subject's so big it has such a bearing on our contemporary lives that it will be necessary for them to understand at least some of it. And how do you get that to them? What source do you use to, to deliver that to them? And I thought I had a good handle on the way that that future looked um, back in the 90s before the internet when I was in grad school. And everything's different now. Although I would say when you write that screenplay for the way the future will look in, in your sci-fi world, I will watch that movie. <laughs> it would be so terrible. <laughs> I'm working on a screenplay now that's all about firefighters 
And as I, I worked on it a little while last night, and it's all not like firefighters and fire trucks, but like firefighters fighting wildfires using airplane, water bombers and helicopters and people on the ground and smoke jumpers, because all of that stuff is just kick ass. It's fascinating and very dramatic and very exciting. And as I, I worked on a couple of um, chapters of it last night, and when I went to pack it up, I was like, I have just written Star Trek only with firefighters. It's all science fiction. That I mean, science fiction is competence pornography, where everyone's competent and doing a good job. And that's not how society works. That's not how people work. And it fascinates me that as much as I, the, the big weakness I think I end up having is I have watched way too much science fiction and it conditions me to imagine a progressivism that I don't think that humankind can deliver. I'm back to being depressing again, but that's a reality that we have to face that we're going to create a product for people who might not be interested in it. And the way that the Pacific particularly was created was less successful than Band of Brothers. There was a magic to the way that Band of Brothers was created that made it quite a bit more popular. And the Pacific did not capture that magic. Well, speaking of the Pacific, this is a question that I asked you about Band of Brothers when we wrap that up. But overall for the Pacific, who is your favorite actor in the series? It's Annie Paris playing Elena because I just think she's perfection. I believe she's a, an excellent actor. And I know I've said it before, but the coffee cup, the coffee scene is a beautiful scene in, in which I found myself caring. Even because keep in mind, like I a confession that I have to make is that my experience in being involved in this series was one that ended in a very disappointing way. And I did not watch it until this month, even though it's 10 years ago. And I found myself watching it try. And I think I needed to put that much time between me and it just because I was still all pissed off and burnt out from the disappointing experience of having been involved in it. And when I watched the scene from this neutral perspective, I tried to not be catty about problems with like 1903 A3 rifles on Guadalcanal and little minor technical and authenticity problems. But I found myself getting to that scene and just really enjoying it because all of the other mumbo jumbo just disappeared. The disappointing experience I had in being involved in it, although, you know, in an oblique way, that all disappeared. I ended up not paying attention to, well, you know, that's not really how you would operate the mortar or that's the wrong rifle. I didn't pay attention to any of that. I just enjoyed the fact that I watched two actors who were very, very good and they delivered a scene. And I already knew the way that the story ended and I still liked it. And I felt that that was very nicely portrayed. So that's my favorite scene. And although it might not be my favorite episode, it's the scene I like the most. Speaking of people that are involved in the series, have the writers for the Pacific mentioned their objectives in making the series? Did they like? Did they deliberately want to make a statement of any kind? And if so, what kind of statement do you think they were making? We had interesting developments on that just over the weekend. In fact, um, in the aftermath of the series, everybody went on press junket. Everybody except my team. We were basically banished. We ended up getting kind of run off with um, pitchforks and torches. Although. The companion book that we worked on, although it was published and there was a little bit of interest in the book, there was a lot more interest in the series. And they talked about the series quite a bit. And I remember 
the night that Mr. Hanks went on The Daily Show back in the day when Jon Stewart still hosted the show. And when they came back, they went to commercial and said, and up next on the show is Tom Hanks to talk about the new HBO miniseries, The Pacific. Came back from the commercial and Jon Stewart said, I'm with actor, director, producer Tom Hanks, and he's here to talk about his new HBO series. Tom, tell me what it's all about. And Tom Hanks said the following words. He said, this series is about the War of the Pacific, which is was a war of racism and hatred. And I immediately just was I was crestfallen and heartbroken. Because that's not what that's not my main takeaway from the Pacific. And that was at the essence of why there ultimately became there was ultimately a schism. And it was between the research team that I was a part of and the people that ultimately ended up writing and making the series. And this schism was over this tone the story that would be told. And so right when it came out, Tom Hanks did not hide the fact that he wanted to emphasize this postmodernistic way of interpreting and understanding the Pacific War that was so heavily informed by authors like John Dower, who wrote the book War Without Mercy that came out in 1986. It was weird in 2009 to be listening to people that were talking about John Dower's War Without Mercy because I was like, haven't we gotten past that? That was way back in the late 80s. That was back when I started undergrad. Why are we still talking about this? Why are we still looking at the subject this way? And that becomes sort of current topic because over the weekend, uh, Bruce McKenna, who wrote seven of the 10 episodes of The Pacific, he went on a podcast that I listened to and paid very close attention to. And he said a couple of things that answer this question very powerfully. And if I could just read a couple of quick quotes I'll tell you what McKenna said. This quote um, I found very interesting, and that was a quote where he was discussing the realities of combat in the Pacific, and he said, the other thing you have to understand about combat in the Pacific is that it's not, like, it's not quite like what it was in Europe, where you know you had sort of a more structured line, you know, in some of these battles on Peleliu and Okinawa, there aren't, there's no difference between it and any of these, you know, because the Japanese have infiltrated, because they can't trust civilians, because, you know, it's they've just been compressed into a zone of death. And there's really no difference between, you know, that was made pretty clear from, you know, from what he wrote about, uh, especially going, and McKenna just sort of descended into a bunch of uhs and, you knows. And the big takeaway was the zone of death quote. And what Bruce McKenna was identifying was a Pacific war that did not exist. And the Pacific War that he was identifying was one where you can hear him attempting to say that the Pacific War was defined by a lack of front lines and infiltration was central to it and that there were civilians involved. And to that, I say poppycock. It reveals immediately that he has a fundamental misunderstanding of the realities of the Pacific War, because to me, the war in the Pacific looks a lot like the war in Europe. The the main point he calls attention to in that quote is this lack of defined lines. Well, the Battle of Guadalcanal was one perimeter around an airfield, and we fought to hold on to, to to hold on to and defend that perimeter for much of the campaign. It was an air, sea, and land battle, but it was basically we were trying to hold the perimeter. There was an established main line of resistance, and the the Japanese were attacking it over and over again. In, in all of the other battles, that's what I see as well. I mean, I'll, I could go down the list one by one, but you don't want to sit through that. 
Okinawa, I think, is the only other one that I would mention. And Okinawa is defined by, I mean, for God's sake, Okinawa has a defensive line that's called the Shuri line where the Japanese before the battle, they were like, all right, we're going to try and hold them on the beaches. We'll fall back through Kakazoo and then we'll fall back to Hacksaw, which the Japanese didn't call it Hacksaw Ridge. We did, but whatever. They, they called it the Uroso Maeda Escarpment, whatever. Anyway, the Japanese then created one fixed defensive line called the Shuri Line where they would stop us. And so in this way, Bruce McKenna has revealed a, a fundamental ignorance of the realities of Pacific War combat and calling attention to the fact that there were no lines. That is not the Pacific War that actually presented itself. And I can't come up with a good Pacific battle where such circumstances did present themselves. And so he was wanting to give a viewing audience a Pacific War that didn't actually exist. Because I I think just from that quote, if you didn't already know he was talking about the war in the Pacific, you would think he was talking about the Viet Cong and Vietnam. Because the reality is, that's what they were talking about. That's what this series is. This series is a Vietnam War era anti-war statement. And Bruce McKenna said it himself in this podcast over the weekend where he provided this long quote that I'll skip most of, but a point that he made. I'm just going to pick it up so I can spare you a lot of the suffering of listening to me reading what Bruce McKenna said. But he said that, he was talking about scenes that were deleted and he said the Pacific was written during the Iraq and Iran war. So it had, there's no way around it affected the way the show was written and acted and directed and done. It's actually the most expensive anti-war movie ever made. And I felt like that was the most honest and real that Bruce McKenna ever was about that series. And this was literally just days ago that he said this. So in the aftermath of the premiere They made the rounds, I mean, even before the premiere debuted, writers, directors, producers, actors made their rounds and did press junket. And they over and over again called emphasis to the Pacific War was different, it was worse. And they called emphasis to fundamental historical misunderstandings like there were no fixed front lines. Nonsense. They made it over and over again sound like they made a 10-episode version of platoon with World War II uniforms, which, to be honest, is kind of what they made. Bruce McKenna himself then declared it um, on his end that, that the series was informed by the po- the present day politics of the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, and that it was produced as the most expensive anti-war movie ever made. I'm not endorsing war. I'm not saying war is great. It's not that. War is terrible. We should have sober understandings, sober and informed understandings of what war is. And when we make wars, when we make movies like if you've ever seen the movie Sands of Iwo Jima, old movie with John Wayne, maybe you've seen it. I think it's worth studying because Sands of Iwo Jima, it adheres to this very traditional, very typical World War II, early Cold War era patriotic paradigm where everything is this over-the-top, highly exaggerated senses of patriotism. It's it's extremely melodramatic with swelling music right at the moment when the hero character gets killed off. It is, in every sense, just nothing but pure cane syrup poured all over your pancakes. And that is an inaccurate way of depicting the realities of World War II. When you and they had an objective in making the war in that way, and that was to celebrate American victory in World War II. I don't have a problem with that. 
um, I also don't have a problem with making something that calls attention to the realities of the suffering of World War II. I am just saying that I believe we we have to recognize that there is an evolution that has been taking place, that we're operating on a continuum of, of change over time, and that that continuum is anchored with movies made back in the 40s and 50s because there were World War II movies made during World War II, and that those movies were like way over the top with this exaggerated Mickey Mouse Disney quality patriotism that today is hard to sit through because we've been conditioned to be such cynics, and that as the decades moved forward, we reached ultimately then the Vietnam time period, and it changed the way that we look at war. And that now there is an equally exaggerated and therefore equally distorted way of looking at war, which I guess I could just go ahead and name the puppy and call it the platoon paradigm, because I feel like we're locked in the platoon paradigm. It was less apparent with Band of Brothers. And in fact, in the interview from the weekend, Bruce McKenna called attention to the fact that in Band of Brothers, we made something different. He, in fact, even voiced a dislike for what I thought was one of the best series, of, uh, one of the best scenes in Band of Brothers. You remember the baseball scene in the final series? Oh, yeah. At the very end where they're kind of saying what what everybody did after the war and everything and how that. Yeah. And it had sort of a mission accomplished kind of quality. And it had sort of a like, we've done the right thing. It had a quality that felt like the filmmakers didn't want to shake their finger in your face and go, don't forget to feel terrible about this because I feel like that's what's happening to me in the Pacific. I don't deny that there's misery in the, and suffering in the Pacific, but there was misery, misery and suffering in World War II. I fought this argument many, many times since the Pacific came out. And people have said, but, oh, but the fighting in the Pacific was so much worse. And I was like, was it? I know of examples of atrocities in World War, in World War II in Europe where American soldiers cut, killed men and they cut their penises off and shoved them in the enemy's throats. And I also, let's not forget about that small matter of the um, extermination centers, the Holocaust and the final solution. Let's not forget about that. When we're quick to say the Pacific was worse. Why? Because there were jungles and it was hotter and the terrain was difficult and it was challenging. Yeah. And I feel like the terrain around Bastogne was pretty damn challenging too. Not that I fought there, but I've been there in the bleak midwinter and it sucks. And I've been on Peleliu when it was hot and humid and it sucks too. And I believe that the Pacific as a miniseries, as an overall project, overwhelmingly attempts to package modern and presentist political ideology into an anti-war film that disproportionately calls attention to environmental circumstances and violence in a way that misrepresents the reality of the war in the Pacific by making it seem like it was so much worse when it was bad, but I'm not necessarily convinced that it was worse. And I feel like I'm more of a specialist in the war in the Pacific than the war in Europe. But Bruce McKenna wants you to come away from that 10 episodes that you just sat through feeling like war is bad and to me, that also feels like a, a really rote and superficialized trivialization of what you should come away with. Because let's face it, we all know that war is bad. I guess what he didn't want to do was give everybody what Band of Brothers did, which was it gave everybody heroes to look up to and admire. And this time we got heroes to look up to and admire and we got to understand a little bit of this, the tormenting and suffering that they went through, the the trauma that they experienced. Whereas Band of Brothers doesn't even really flirt with that idea. But with this, 
we got filmmakers who really wanted to double down on that idea. And I believe that in doubling down on that idea in participating in what has really become kind of common now, they went with the idea of Pacific War was worse. And it had a uniquely traumatizing effect on the people who fought it. And I don't believe that's true. To feed some of that back and, and get your opinion on this, I wonder if some of that is like we were talking about earlier, you're talking about September 11th, right? And Band of Brothers, I believe, was released right around then, which means it was created beforehand. Whereas the Pacific being created after and mentioning, you know, being, I can't remember the exact word that he used, but influenced by the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. And when it comes to war, I think you've made the point well of war is bad anywhere. And so if you're looking for a way to tell a story that you want to tell, it's not hard to find bad things in war to help you get that point across. And it just sounds like the timing of it was Band of Brothers being in the European theater, really more the the timing of when it came out influenced what that story was they were trying to tell. So they weren't looking for some of those horrible things that happened in war because horrible things happen in war everywhere. Uh, does that kind of sound like what you're saying there? Totally. It totally sounds like that because it's hard. I think I find it hard to imagine a world like I continue to struggle saying back when we were in Afghanistan and treating it as past tense because it's past tense now because that war is over. That war was around for 20 years. I got quite accustomed to that was just the new American normal. September 11th was so long ago, I, I struggled to remember what the wor world was like before it. But I do remember because I was an, an, an adult that was already out of grad school and already in a working profession and I was teaching history. And I remember that there were levels of optimism then that were crushed by September 11th. There was also a larger movement that it would be wrong for me not to mention it. And that is that the, the era of Vietnam was so influential on the baby boomer generation that they allowed the presentist politics of the 1970s to change the way that they looked at the world. They were becoming political thinkers. And I understand that part of what every person goes through is they, re, they rebel against an establishment. That establishment, the first establishment that they rebel against is the establishment of their parents. Then later in life, when you become more mature, that you recognize how valuable and dear your parents were. And you recognize the difficulties that they went through. And people just naturally, when they get past 40, they start to feel a nostalgia for their mother and their father. And there was an entire generation that, a generation of baby boomers who crossed that threshold into the era of nostalgia. And I think what they wanted was to understand what their parents had gone through during the World War II era a little bit more sensitively. And so the result was that we got an era where we briefly sort of drifted away from the post-Vietnam era politics. Like a movie that I'm quite fond of is the movie Memphis Bell. Maybe you've seen it. And I think it's quite good. I remember when it came out, I guess it came out in 89. I was an undergrad history major at the time. And I went out and saw it in the theaters the night that it came out. And there was like a, a veteran was there and I took my dad and there was a veteran there that set up a table and his, and this veteran, I saw it in Birmingham and, and he was from Birmingham and he was a part of the 100th bombardment group, which is a bombardment group that it, it suffered extremely heavy casualties in the air war of Europe. And this guy, the theater asked him to come out and he set up a table with like photos and memorabilia from his time 
flying. And my dad and I showed up at the movie and we saw this guy. And we were like, let's go talk to him. And we stood there 30 minutes and we were almost late for the movie because we were having a great time talking to this veteran. We walked away and it was my father who's now no longer alive. But when we walked away and he was like, yeah, it makes me think about my father because my father's father had been in the Second World War. And he was like, yeah. And he's like, I had a different experience because I was in uniform and I was in the military. And so me and my dad kind of bonded over that. And he was like, but I still wish he was around so we could talk to him more because my grandfather was in had a weird, weird career where he was in North Africa. And then he went all the way from North Africa to Guam, Saipan, Tinian. Peleliu, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa. Very weird World War II experience where he experienced all those things. And we would talk about like, ah, man, I wish he wouldn't. He died in 73. I was like, I wish he hadn't died. We talked so much more about him. But I could see that my father was, it was a nostalgia thing. And we saw this old veteran at the premiere of Memphis Bell. We were feeling that and to an extent harvesting that emotion. And I remember what it was like to move out of the late 80s and into the 90s. And when we moved into the 90s, there was a different feeling because during that time period, Stephen Ambrose published a series of books, one of which was Bandit Brothers, that was then followed by his big, thick book that came out for the uh, 50th anniversary of D-Day, 60th anniversary of D-Day, I'm sorry, 60th, and then his book Citizen Soldier. And there was this wave, this wave of sentiment that was extremely nostalgic and celebratory of World War II, the World War II generation. It was, after all, during this time period that the book The Greatest Generation came out, written by Tom Brokaw. And there was a totally different feeling. And then, bam, Saving Private Ryan. And then, bam, Band of Brothers and September 11th. And everything changed after September 11th. That wave of this positivity that was more celebratory. It was a celebratory way of looking back on the World War II generation that was more appreciative, that was more interested, that was more engaged. And that all went away after September 11th. And I think because September 11th reminded the American people that um, we can't have victory culture anymore, that the world's a very complicated place. And in many ways, no matter what you do, it's wrong. Even if it's right, it's wrong. We just got through 20 years of struggling with those very ideas in Afghanistan. I don't think we'd get this band, the Band of Brothers that we got if it was in production before September 11th. I'm sorry, if it was in production after September 11th. And that's why I think these two miniseries look so different. Bruce McKenna said it himself. He made an anti-war movie. That's what he wrote. And that's what it is. And that's very much in keeping with the politics. You're a science fiction fan, are you not, sir? It dep- only if it's good. That was a good answer, by the way. I like the way you talk about it <laughs> because I'm, I have lower tastes in science fiction. I would kind of gobble up all of it. When I was a kid, there was a TV show called Battlestar Galactica, which then you're probably familiar with the, the later version that came out. And you might remember that Battlestar Galactica was multiple seasons, maybe three. I can't remember now. Battlestar Galactica, when the, TV, the new TV series came out after September 11th during the era of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, I got all excited about it and I watched them all and I eventually just kind of walked away in disgust because they used Battlestar Galactica as a very clear means of transmitting their the way that they felt. Their political opinions about Iraq and Afghanistan were transmitted through Battlestar Galactica to the point where there's one episode where there's even a line of dialogue where somebody says either you're with us or you're or you're against us. 
which was a direct quote of George Herbert Walker Bush or George Walker Bush. And I remember thinking at that point, like, why can't I just, can I just have science fiction? Cause it's supposed to be an escape. It's supposed to be that. And I mean, I mention it simply because I believe it very clearly indicates a mood that was, that hung over this country during that time period. And in my life, I have watched different moods come and go. I remember the 444 days of the Iran hostage crisis. I remember it very clearly because it was shoved in my face, even though I was a kid, it was shoved in my face every night on the news. And then I remember the era of Ronald Reagan. And I'm not here to say that Ronald Reagan was great, and I'm not here to criticize him. I am just here to say that there was a difference in mood, that I think the American people were more cynical and disenchanted during the Carter era because of the Iran hostage crisis. And then that gave way to an era when people wanted to be a little bit more, uh, not so heavy. They wanted to, not, not that they wanted to be ultra or super patriotic because we still had troubled times in the 1980s, but the 1980s felt different. And as an extension of this overall discussion, I would argue that the 2000s felt different. And as a result of that, they produced a totally different feel in the Pacific. My last question for you is, it's a big one. Over the past few years, you've come on the show to talk about The Longest Day, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, and Now the Pacific. If you had to put these in an order of how they've impacted people's understanding of World War II history, what order would you put them in, starting with most impactful to least? I think most impactful is probably The Longest Day. It's faded a lot, but The Longest Day situated the D-Day story um, in such a way that I don't think its prominence would have continued had it not been for the long. I don't think in other, in other words, if there had been no longest day, I think there would have been no private Ryan. And this way, I believe longest day was more influential than private Ryan, but I would select private Ryan for being number two because prior to COVID-19, um, one of my primary jobs was, functioning as a tour guide in Normandy. And I've written two books on the subject and a couple hundred articles on the subject. And it's a subject I live with constantly and I love and I can't get enough of it. And I watched the way that the combination of Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers changed the way that tour guides deal with Normandy because especially during the last few years, I had to kind of like scold people because all people wanted to talk about was Saving Private Ryan. I would take them to Omaha Beach and they would ask me questions about Saving Private Ryan. And they would ask me questions about characters who didn't exist. They would ask me, like, what about Sergeant Horvath? And what about, where's Captain Miller buried at the cemetery? And I'd have to tell them, it's a fictional character that never existed. And they'd be like, oh, so, but they, they showed the cemetery. They created a fake grave in the cemetery. Oh, okay, well, where was that? Okay, let, we're not going to do that. We're not going to go walk over to the spot of the cemetery where they put the fake grave in. And I mean, there were times where I would get churlish and I would say like, why don't we talk? There's 9,387 people here that want to tell you a story. Why don't we talk about them instead of that movie? And I ended up developing kind of a crappy attitude about Private Ryan because that movie is full of historical distortions and inaccuracies that I still struggle with. Although it reached people and I'm often scolded like you should like it more because it reached people and it made it more... It, popularized it in a way that it probably would not have been popularized when scolded i'll go okay yeah yeah i get it yeah sure it was it, it's a landmark but it's a little bit too much of a landmark i think longest day is the biggest 
Private Ryan is the second. Band of Brothers is third because Band of Brothers created a sensation and a phenomenon sort of unlike anything I think I've ever seen. I believe in the past I've mentioned to you that they've now taken to the actors from Band of Brothers go back to Normandy for personal appearances and autographs. And one of them has a band that plays and things like that. One of the guys from Band of Brothers has a band. Please tell me it's called Brothers. <laughs> You're missing an opportunity there. It's um, Shane, what's his name? I can't remember his last name right now. Um, that played Liebgott. It's his band. I think it's his band. At any rate, that series, I think, on an overall historical level, it didn't have the greatest influence. But that series created an emotional phenomenon that is like nothing I have ever seen in my entire life. To this day, people can't get enough of it. That, that series left people wanting more so badly that we're, I mean, and that was 20 years ago. We're 20 years after the fact and people are still thirsty for it to the point where they still want to be around these actors. They want to interview them and have photos made with them. People still talk about it. It created an entire genre of publishing where people basically write Band of Brothers spinoffs and people can't get enough of it. I know that to be the fact from basically all of my tour guiding, my tour guiding, my publications were about the 82nd Airborne Division. And I'm, I'm far more interested in that division and I'm far more knowledgeable about that division and nobody cares. I'll get tour groups in Normandy and I'll try to tell them about 82nd Airborne Division paratroopers and things that they did. And the crowd, I'll lose them like that. If I drag them over near Brickor Manor or near Utah Beach and tell them Band of Brothers stories, I have their fixed attention. I, I do have an adult attitude about this and that I recognize like, hey, that why did that why did that series succeed in a way that the Pacific didn't because I was involved with the one that didn't succeed nearly as much as the other one did. And Bruce McKenna in that interview himself said that in Band of Brothers, they purposely brought a greater emphasis on heroism, which was perfectly in harmony with the greater vibe that emerged in the 1990s with books like the book Band of Brothers, the Ambrose books, the book, the greatest generation that was the vibe that sort of hummed in the 90s and that vibe went away on september 11th and what we got instead was we had to return we went kind of back to the dark and gloomy side there's plenty to be dark and gloomy about with the pacific war but i am saying that that these these people who make these mini series they make decisions about what they want you to think and feel and in Band of Brothers, they wanted you to think about um, just cause, and they wanted you to feel a sense of identification and admiration for the generation that fought World War II. The people who exerted greater control than I did over the Pacific, what they wanted you to think and feel was war is bad, war traumatizes, and these heroes, they're heroes and they're brave, but they're traumatized heroes. I think it actually, in a way, is sort of a reflection on gone are the days of the anti-war movement spitting on soldiers that returned from Vietnam. There's some fascinating historiography on that subject. There's a book I would recommend called The Spitting Image that investigates this idea of, of like counterculture hippies spitting on people in uniform during the 60s and 70s. And the book overwhelmingly concludes that it's mythology. 
but it was a mythology that was created by the far right, by the conservative right, to critique the the counterculture hippie left. Regardless of whether or not it's mythology, I think it's interesting that the Pacific creates a world where we can both hate war and scold it while simultaneously celebrating the heroes in a way that is different than the Vietnam era. Because in the Vietnam era, we hated war and every damn thing that had anything to do with it. And if you show up at the bus station in your uniform, somebody's going to spit on you. Or at least that's the mythology. And so in a way, I think of it as an attenuation. It's a political ideology that is adjusting the dials and they know now, after the experience, you remember the 1991 Gulf War, in the, in the aftermath of the 1991 Gulf War, there was a little bit of a patriotic, celebratory, mission accomplished kind of thing. And then, and then we moved beyond that. And that war was so brief that it's almost like nobody had a big moment to challenge the way that we treated the end of the Gulf War. And Lee Greenwood and that song, Proud to be an American, that came kind of, they became kind of the metaphors representing that era. And then we moved into the latter part of the 90s. And that, I mean, so I'm saying that Lee Greenwood in the 1993, 1991 Gulf War, that that was an era that was the pendulum swinging all the way back in the other way. So during Vietnam, it swung all the way over this way with counterculture hippies spitting on people in uniform, which may not have ever happened. Read the book. I'm not here to talk about that. But I am here to say that that pendulum was swung all, all the way over to the left during the Vietnam era. And that pendulum then swung all the way back over to the right. And it was all the way up at its highest apogee in the late 80s and 90s. And it was therefore more, it was fashionable for an NBC News correspondent to write a book called The Greatest Generation, in which he identifies a generation of people as exemplifying characteristics and traits that are better than other generations, which is horse as you and I both know. But... Did that stop people from loving that book? No, it didn't, because people gobbled that book up. And I would just say, I see young people in uniform today that they fit the description that Tom Brokaw elaborated in The Greatest Generation. They fit it to a T. It is, history is not gener generational. History is something that exhibits change over time, but there are some things that don't. And I believe that the optimism, courage, sacrifice, and sense of duty that that motivated people like John Bassalone, I think it still motivates a large number of people to this day. So I don't know that the generational means of explaining everything was an effective way of doing it. I, I'm very, very critical of that book because as much as I love the World War II generation, I see the same exhibits and characteristics in the Vietnam era. I see it in the same, the people who have fought the war that we have fought for the last 20 years. The result is I can't help but recognize that it was fashionable for an NBC correspondent to say favorable things about a generation that is best known for fighting a war. That's the way the world looked back in the early 90s. Would you see an NBC correspondent writing that book today? I don't think you would, because it is not fashionable to indicate duty, honor, courage, sacrifice, optimism, all of the things that, all of the words that were used to describe the greatest generation in Brokaw's book. I don't think it's fashionable anymore. Yeah, you'll get the occasional story. I saw it on NBC Nightly News last night, in fact, where they will, I believe now there are participants in this era of the of superficialization, the thank you for your service generation. I f flew home from Las Vegas the other day. And now every time you board a flight, 
they call forward people active duty in uniform and thank them for the service. And I feel like I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's a great thing. I think you should definitely appreciate and thank people who serve. It's just that I feel like that's just a correction from the Vietnam era when people in uniform were sort of targeted by a little bit of scorn and ridicule. We, it's almost like the politicization of, of the American political landscape now recognizes like, okay, you can't take it out on the people in uniform. You have to, you can be critical, but you just can't take it out on them. And you, you should let them board the airplane first and you should thank them for their service. And through these superficial means, you can then, you know, open up the can on um, American foreign policy as it relates to Iraq and Afghanistan. And I feel like that's where we are. And the Pacific was created during a high watermark of that era. We have just passed another high watermark because the era of the Afghan pullout, I think, is a high watermark, a lot like the surge in Iraq was. Um, and the Pacific was being written and produced during the era of the surge in Iraq. And I believe its politics very obviously identify it as having been born during that era. I hadn't really thought of it that way of, you know, how it, when it's created is going to affect the stories that get told. Dan, are you a Star Wars fan? Of course, the answer is yes. It always should be. Um, do I have to include all of the Star Wars movies or are there some that I can... <laughs> <laughs> Right. I'm glad to hear that. That means you're a healthy Star Wars fan. Yeah, qualifying. Prequels? Let's not even say that word. Let's not even. But like the original movie, like I know I'm being silly right now, but at the same time, that movie changed my life. The fir the first movie. I know it's episode five, but it's the first movie. And when the, when it, I remember from the moment of the black screen and the words on screen came up, I was just blown away my mind was blown every minute of that movie affected me emotionally and i don't just mean like emotions like carrie fisher was hot and i had a crush on her like every other american boy in this country and i don't mean emotions like that but i like the award scene at the end of the first movie i remember thinking as they hang awards around everybody's neck except chewbacca i mean i, I remember that award scene i remember thinking like wow this is amazing and it emotionally reached me i'm not bringing it up just to gush about star wars stuff but i'm bringing it up because that's storytelling you create a hero you put a hero in a setting you employ the artifice of of effective storytelling to develop that hero that hero and follow that hero through it all and like, I have a very good friend that Mark met Mark Hamill once. And I was like, what was it like? And he was like, I couldn't speak. And I was like, he made movies. I mean, not talking about recent movies, of course, but I was like, this man made movies and people are so emotional now, still decades and decades later that he's, he's effectively a God. If I ever met him, I don't think I'd be able to speak. If I ever met Harrison Ford, I wouldn't be able to speak. And that's what good storytelling can do. The good storytelling that was used so effectively in the first Star Wars movie, notice the qualification to the first movie, the good storytelling that was used in the, in the first movie, I think is the exact same kind of good storytelling that was used in Band of Brothers. And that it gave you a hero, and in some cases, the reluctant hero, the reluctant hero who is swept into bigger events and rises to the challenge. That is, that is a type of storytelling that takes us back to antiquity. There's nothing new under the sun. We are 
in Star Wars is basically just a Greek chorus. Band of Brothers is the same thing. We know the things that people will respond favorably to. And I believe that the era of the movie Platoon inaugurated in, it marks a high point in this post-Vietnam era when people didn't really want that heroic storytelling so much. And that, and it, would, it became kind of like a Hepcat cool thing, like snap your fingers to like the, the movie that made the powerful political statement. And that, that became sort of a, a fashion because let's face it, in America, uh, it used to be that baseball was our national pastime and it's not anymore. It's politics. That's a national pastime. It is a means for people to express themselves and the, the interest in, in those expressions, they transmit themselves into political events. They express the, themselves in the way that many series get made based on the historical circumstances that surround them. And so I would argue that Guadalcanal, Peleliu, Iwo Jima, and Okinawa had absolutely nothing to do with September 11th, with the invasion of Iraq, with weapons of mass destruction, with Osama bin Laden, with Afghanistan, with any of that. And yet, Bruce McKenna, with other people, made them relate to that, those present political and historical moments. Well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about the Pacific over the past few episodes. Before I do let you go for the end of this series, one last time, can you share a bit more about what you've been working on recently? Yeah, I'm very excited about a new TV show that I'm working on for the Discovery Channel that's about Fugo, the Japanese balloon bomb campaign during World War II, a campaign during which the Japanese released 9,000 bombs that used the jet stream to travel all the way across the Pacific Ocean to land in the Pacific Northwest uh, with a focus and an emphasis on one bomb that killed um, that killed some people near Bly, Oregon in May 1945, the one and only time that death resulted from enemy action um, in North America during World War II. That show will be coming out on the Discovery Channel. We think probably in December I have to go out to California this weekend and do my last interview for it. It's, it's a great subject, and I think the show is going to be well-received. But probably right at about the same time, my other big project for the last couple of years will be coming out, and that is Call of Duty Vanguard which has been produced by my development studio, Sledgehammer Games, and it will be available on basically every console you can imagine on November 5th, just in time for the holiday shopping season. Fantastic. Can't wait for those. <laughs> you play Duty, don't you? Say yes. Yes, yes. I think we had this discussion. Yes, the World War II ones are much, much better than the modern futuristic warfare ones. Do you like them? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that. I, I kind of hope that we'll get a sequel out of this game. We set it up to sequel, and I'm hoping we get that. It's all a matter of how well it's received. I have a feeling it'll be received pretty well. Those those games tend to do pretty well. <laughs> Thank you again so much for your time, Marty. It's my pleasure, Dan. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan Lefebvre. I'd like to thank Marty Morgan once again for taking the time to help us separate fact from fiction throughout the entire HBO miniseries, The Pacific. And of course, don't forget to check out Marty's latest work on the Discovery Channel, as well as in Call of Duty Vanguard. As always, you can find links to Marty's work in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Oh, and in this episode, and really throughout this entire series, we've talked about some of the other movies and shows like The Longest Day, 
Saving Private Ryan, and Band of Brothers. Marty has been on Based on a True Story before to talk about the historical accuracy of each of those. So, if you want to dig in even deeper into World War II history, be sure to do a search for those over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the Battle of Okinawa was the first time the American military encountered Japanese civilians. Number two, the Nimitz plan for blockading the Japanese islands would have imposed starvation on millions of people. Number three, John and Lena Bassalone were married for less than a year. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's go backwards and start with number three. John and Lena Bassalone were married for less than a year. That is true. As we learned from Marty, John Bassalone married Lena Riggi shortly before John shipped out to Iwo Jima, where he was killed in combat. That means John and Lena were married for a total of 224 days. Lena survived the war, but she never remarried. Continuing along to number two, the Nimitz plan for blockading the Japanese islands would have imposed starvation on millions of people. That is also true. Marty explained there were a few different plans in place to avoid performing an amphibious assault on the Japanese home islands. One of those was put forth by Admiral Nimitz and involved blockading the islands. Of course, we know from history that is not what happened, but if it did, it would have no doubt imposed starvation on millions of people living on the Japanese home islands. That means number three is the lie. The Battle of Okinawa was the first time the American military encountered Japanese civilians. Marty told us that even though the Americans did encounter a lot of civilians on Okinawa, prior to the Okinawa campaign, they had encountered civilians on places like Guam, Tinian, and most notably, Saipan. That just about wraps up our time together today. Before we go, though, the last thing I like to do on each episode is to share how much time and effort went into creating this episode. My hope in sharing this information is to go beyond just my podcast, but hopefully you'll start to appreciate all the podcasts that you listen to for free just a little bit more. Of course, I only have the statistics for my own show. So with that said, today's episode took a total of 62 hours to create. As I always do, I want to make it clear that time is only my time for this one episode. That 62 hours does not include any of my guest time researching the subject matter we talked about. It also does not include the time it takes for me to do podcast-related things that are not a part of creating this one episode. For example, the time it takes to maintain the Based on a True Story website, social media, email newsletter, and all those other little things outside creating a podcast episode that are still required to make the overall show. All those things take time to set up and maintain, and they cost money that goes beyond those things associated with this one episode. But they are all things that are required, because if I didn't do those things... There wouldn't be any episodes of Based on a True Story at all. In a nutshell, this podcast may be free to listen to, but it is not free to create. So that's why I'm so thankful for these sponsors whose ads you've heard on this episode. You can find out more information about them over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash advertisers. But those advertisers are not the only ones helping to keep this show alive. There are wonderful people just like you who are helping to keep this show financially going. 
So if you enjoyed today's episode, if you found value in today's episode, I hope you'll consider helping to support the next episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.